This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hello, this is Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse Dave Fox. Each episode, at least usually, more on that later, we have a guest on to play one of their jokes and discuss how and why it came together. In a way, today's episode is about one joke, the cosmic joke, that is the fact that we all die. That's because our guest is Leslie Hedlund, co-creator and showrunner of Russian Doll. Truth is, this is not going to be a traditional episode of Good One. Yes, at the core we're talking about one joke, which is kind of more like a runner, as that joke happens over 20 times over the course of Russian Doll's first season. Yeah, we're going to focus on every single death on the show, which is like the whole show. If you want to see for yourself, Vulture actually made a supercut of all the deaths, which we link to in the show notes, and we'll also post with the episode on Vulture.com itself. So if you haven't seen Russian Doll, I, I really, 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 really suggest you rectify that. First, it's great, and you'll like it, but also because this interview might, not might, will, be kind of spoilery and at a minimum, just really thorough. If you have seen it, great. You'll love this conversation. As Leslie walks me through the whole arc of the season, offering just so much insight on what is happening for the characters and why. But to summarize, in it, Natasha Leone plays Nadia, a tortured video game designer with a taste for destructive behavior, who's celebrating her 36th birthday at a party thrown by her friend. The problem is she keeps on dying in increasingly and then decreasingly absurd ways. And after each time she goes back to that party with the world slightly altered and with her getting closer to understanding how to stop what's happening. As a result, this episode is going to be part good one interview, part director's commentary. Remember DVD commentaries? They were good. There's some characters that we talk about that you might need to know, so I will sort of run through them. Maxine, who is the friend who's throwing the party, who's played by Greta Lee. Uh, Lizzie, who's another one of Nadia's friends, who's played by Rebecca Henderson, who is also Leslie Hedlund's wife in real life. You have Ruth, who's played by Elizabeth Ashley, who is sort of the woman who raised Nadia after her mom passed away. She is also a trauma therapist. Uh, you have Mike, played by Jeremy Bob, who's noteworthy because he sleeps with uh, a number of the female characters in the show in a way that overlaps with a number of storylines. You have John, who's played by Yul Vasquez, who is Nadia's ex-boyfriend, who's also noteworthy because he always wants Nadia to have met his daughter. Lastly, you have Alan, whose storyline overlaps with Nadia in the third episode in a very important, significant way. And that is essentially the cast you need to know for Russian Doll. So, unlike most episodes, we're not going to start with a clip, but I promise you, it will be okay. There will be clips. So, next you'll hear is me again, but I will be talking to Leslie Hedlund. Take it away, me. So, we are here with Leslie Hedlund. Thank you so much for being here. Please, thank you so much for having me. So, uh, before we talk about the show, specifically before working on it, I, I, in a broadly, what was your relationship to death or dying? Uh, I'm terrified of dying. I, I, I don't. I'm not afraid to say it. I, I'm very scared of dying. The, the thing that scares me the most about dying is the nothingness. And my wife knows that this scares me and knows that this is my greatest fear. And so sometimes when we're lying in bed, she'll just roll over and turn to me and go, "The nothingness," <laughs> <laughs> and I'll start crying like immediately. Is it, is just, it, is it a active anxiety like walking around? New York City and your is it a hum you know or is it sort of when your things are quiet you think about oh it's more when things are quiet that I a- actively think about it but it is a hum in the back of everything that I do I think is just that 
uh, real terror of of nothing. Yeah. Uh, of just the nothing. Yeah. That that my soul, my personality, any thought I've ever thought, any person I've ever loved. You know, the even the idea that I wouldn't be able to miss a person, that there would be no even connection to uh, or miss having a feeling or, you know, that is just like absolutely terrifying to me. So I had the Lucas Brothers on a few episodes, or I guess a bunch of episodes ago, and we were talking about, it felt like there's a lot of existentialist art in comedy that is happening in a way that hasn't happened since the sort of first wave of existentialist theater. Oh. And I go, what do you think that's attributed to? And they very quickly said 9-11. Really? Yeah. And I think I think they're correct. I was very happy they said that because I think that is correct. And because I think we underrate the that in terms of when people like, I remember someone described this as like a post-economic collapse show in some interview to you. I was like, oh. 9-11 happened in New York <laughs> and a lot of people died. <laughs> but it's, you were all living in New York at the time. Yes. Oh, yeah. I was seven blocks away. Do you see that? I mean, you now seem surprised when I brought it up. I mean, you were aware that you, oh. 9-11 happened, but you feel like... Yeah. I, I would say yes. I think for me personally... A hundred percent, having lived through it and and having had that experience, and I think for sure it's always kind of influenced my work and specifically choosing to write comedy about it. I will say that it's it was something I was attracted to though even before mm-hmm. that, just on a personal yeah, level. Of course. Whether or not there would have the fact that there is an audience for that type of comedy. I think you're right. Yeah, I think that's more. It's more about that there's an appetite for it than because creators would, would write about it all the time if yeah. they could. Oh well, I love like I, I think one of the most profound kind of moments for me realizing I wanted to be why that I wanted to direct theater at the time when it was I was like 17 so I didn't really know what was going on but I saw a production at my high school of the bald soprano and I just thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever I was the only person laughing and it's not because I like got it or quote unquote or anything it was just it really just tickled me so hard even to the point where when I did Samuel Beckett for my senior thesis at NYU, when I did Waiting for Godot, I did it as a very hard physical comedy. Oh, interesting. You know, a very, like, basically my pitch for it was that it was a Marx Brothers movie. And so literally everybody, to, to their chagrin or to their delight, had to sit through like a two-hour, like, you know, nonstop physical comedy yeah. slapstick fest yeah. and uh and and i was both lauded and criticized at the time for that <laughs> there were a lot of purists that were like you cannot do waiting for godot this way and i just but i just when i read it i was like that's what i'm hearing yeah. i'm hearing jokes like i'm hearing vaudevillian yeah, it sounds style exactly jokes. Like vaudeville jokes yeah so i was like to me that seems like the way to to, to the way to do this play yeah i mean i think it's interesting because in many ways, this is waiting for. It is like a slapstick. Oh, 100 yes. percent. Oh, I mean, when when Natasha first pitched the show to me, she pitched it as no exit. Initially, I think it was more of a trying to escape the party than yeah. trying to escape death, and then trying to live through the party. Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting that you you bring that up because I was curious. You know, they brought you to sort of they brought you a character and a general goal of creating a female yes. existentialist show where a woman's not trying to get a man or a job and then as, as you allude to it wasn't necessarily immediately like this is a show where a person's dying no all the time. no no and no that sort of came out but seemingly. i think it was it was natasha's brush with death though that was always yeah. hanging over 
meaning I don't think she would mind me saying that, but because she did always reference all that jazz and, you know, even showing that end sequence in the writer's room of like, you know, bye bye life and, Mm -hmm. you know, all that stuff. So I don't think I'm going too far to say that that was always death was always a thing that was hanging over the show. It was just like, how are we going to feature it? Yeah. But Um, so I guess the question is, but why, how featuring it by having a person die, right? There is, you can feature death by a person being sick. You can feature death by there being a killer that doesn't, kill you i mean like there's a lot right. of, but why why dying and when you have this character sort of reverse when you realize it's dying what do you then do to the character well to me it was very clear uh, as someone you know who's had her own m- moments with substance abuse and obviously natasha's talked very freely about that being her experience as well when you live that type of lifestyle, you are essentially dying every night. Like you do kind of wake up and go, mm-hmm. I don't know what the fuck just happened. And every day, every time you, you know, go out on a bender or relapse or whatever it is, you do wake up kind of going like, no, 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 this will be different. Like now it will be different. And one of the things that really affected me, like when I was working on Godot back when I was 22 years old, was thinking that the premise of Godot is or the tone of Godot is if your life, if right before you died, your life did flash before your eyes, except it was every time you took a shit or picked your nose instead of like the moments that you mm-hmm. actually thought you'd remember. Like it was all the like basically you at your basest moments, like just suddenly went by and you yeah. were like, is this funny? You know, and then you're dead. You know, <laughs> it's like, I guess it's kind of funny. You're dead. You know, like, and I think that um, any type of self harm, like a cycle of self harm or a cycle of substance abuse ends up being similar to that kind of idea that yeah. like it is both the your basest self and your saddest kind of the saddest existence that I've had any experience with but at the same time if you kind of if there is a spin on it where it is very funny you know like that you continue to make the same mistakes expecting yeah. different results so to me once we landed on that she keeps dying and coming back to the same point to me that just kind of regardless of where it was going to go I was like yeah that's what we're trying to struggle but that's what that's what this character is struggling with whether you want to say it's substance abuse trauma you know um a narcissistic parent uh the wound of uh of an inner child that hasn't been um fully healed like we all you know we all kind of have whatever that glitches in our makeup that keeps us going um forward on a same trajectory until we make we make it enough times that we finally go okay fine and usually other people notice it Mm-hmm. before you do. And in this case, it's the audience. The audience is going, you need to stop. <laughs> you need to stop trying to do that thing that you're doing because we know from the rules of this universe yeah. that this isn't going to work. And so they get to be kind of in on the joke in that way. Before we get into it, I wanted to sort of the most basics of how you write. Uh, I remember reading when you were a playwright, you said you needed like extreme deadlines and you like to put things on yes. your feet and yeah. have read-throughs. In this situation, how does that evolve where you don't have the ability to like, you can't like put Russian doll in front of a audience and be like no we did have read-throughs though we did have uh table reads rather yeah uh for which were always very helpful and we did them two two at a time i believe like we would do i think it was like one and two three and four five and six seven and eight um with this particular process um because thank god i had a writer's room you know i had more people you did have the experience of people um all of us breaking the outline together 
having that outline approved by all of the producers as oh, well as the um, network and the studio. Um, then that person, you know, that writer would go off to write. They would bring back their draft. We would give notes. They would go make those adjustments, come back. And then it was up to the higher level writers, meaning me, Natasha, Allison Silverman, um, Tammy Sagar, who came on when we started shooting, to essentially judge all the drafts based on the notes that we got from the you know mm-hmm. the studio and the network. Um, as we shot the stuff that were production problems, meaning oh the the even though we got this scene approved by X Y and Z, we actually can't execute it because of money yeah. or time or. A production limit limitation and so it really was a process that was fraught with deadlines so I love that but it was also fraught with a lot of limitations that I wasn't expecting meaning I wasn't uh I was prepared for like this the normal amount of like making a tv show making a making an independent film kind of what happens when you get into production I was not prepared for needing to keep track of all of those different loops in my head of keeping exactly where we were as we were block shooting you, and to explain block shooting yes yeah it's you you shoot all the scenes that happen in a place at a time regardless of what episodes and you do three episodes at a time right that's right we did uh yeah three three and two and then as a result you have to be like what is the tone of this like right because right? You've talked about loop meetings where you're like, okay, what is happening yeah. in this loop? <laughs> Those and, were so, oh my God. And what time of the day, but I imagine it's also like, okay, well, if this is loop seven, she should feel this. And how do you- Emotionally, yeah, exactly. Where is she? Yeah. Because I imagine, though Natasha was a, very much a part of the process, I imagine- for Thank the other God. Act- for the other actors. The other actors, really- I think it was much harder. I mean, well, I don't want to say it was much harder, but I mean, thank God Natasha was a part of the process the, the entire way because, you know, we I would be able to call back to something that we had talked about in October, you know what I mean? Like, and then like, remember when we were talking about this thing? That's what this scene's about. Yeah. Or, you know, or like, it's kind of like this scene. Remember we had that scene, but then we had to cut it. And so now this is kind of the scene. And she was like, oh, right. You know, like, yeah. she's just so adaptable, you know, like the rest of the cast, I think it was, I mean, my wife was on this show and she said, recently um she played lizzie um and she said you know it was really easy because you just had to be in the moment mm-hmm. all the time like you you just didn't um for for their characters for their you know they, they were like we're just in the moment you know i think for um alan for charlie who plays alan and for natasha it was a lot harder yeah. you know like for their characters they're kind of like yeah we're we're at the party it's so great did you brainstorm a list of deaths ahead of time or sort of like we must have i mean I, you know i don't specifically remember that day but we <laughs> must have done that like we must have just sat there and been like well especially because then you'd hit something and you go, okay, so she should die here. <laughs> like, like emotionally, it feels like this is the moment where she'd die. You know, it's like, but how is she going to die? What have we not used? What's, what, what, what does this episode need? What do we need to push the character forward? What tonally would be interesting here? Yeah. Um, but also, like, because it was such a New York centric show, what New York death specifically do we think we can like sneak in here <laughs> that we're all afraid of? All right, you're ready to go through. Yeah, some of the let's deaths. do it. Let's do it. Uh, so episode one nine minutes in mike comes over to sleep with her and then she, <laughs> they have some sort of conversation she gets an uber for him he goes away she starts doing work she realizes she has no cigarettes so she goes to the store she sees oatmeal she starts crossing the street hey little one she gets hit by a car oh my God. and then you zoom into her dead face Why scripting at that moment? Why that way? 
I put that into the pilot. I don't remember if we all agreed on it or not before I put it in there, but we definitely knew that that first death had to be one that felt real, meaning that it felt real both as you were watching it in real time and also felt real to that character. So you definitely had to end the death, you know, going on um, some sort of push in on Nadia's face, not moving, not breathing, not Mm -hmm. blinking, so that you, the audience member, understood in the world of this, even though I'm about to see her again, she is dead. Not she was, not this is some kind of dreamscape moment, but she is physically dead. Yes, you see her not moving and hear other people be like, like, oh my God, she's dead. (laughs) Or whatever it is they're (laughs) saying. God God bless the loop group. Um, The car hit was one that felt like if we could accomplish it, you know, would feel visceral enough that you wouldn't question Mm -hmm. it. I also wanted it to be super violent, but not something that you would need to see a lot of gore for, if that makes sense. Like, you know, we do get a little gory later, but it felt important for this one for it to feel blunt, eventful, in the sense that it's a huge event, but uneventful meaning it was not out of the ordinary. This is something that could happen to anybody yeah. at any time. Uh, so number two, you're still in episode one. Uh, so this time she doesn't sleep with Mike, so she talks to Ruth about her mom, um, and then sort of Nadia pushes her off. So then she, we meet John. John goes with her to find oatmeal. Oatmeal. Same thing happens where Nadia sees oatmeal and tries to cross the street, but John stops her. Hey! <gasps> what are you doing? Did you see that car? Which I totally oh, forgot about. The, yeah. I remember that happening. Yeah, the idea that whenever people are there to witness her, they do stop her from yeah. doing it. Meaning like another person, which is kind of like a big theme of the whole sh- of the whole season is like another pair of eyes, another person actually, you know, kind of stops us from a certain amount of self-destruction. Then, of course, she tosses John aside, goes to oatmeal. Finds that, oatmeal in this, yeah. And then so her and oatmeal are sitting on... A, oh, yeah. The, a, uh, on the East ban- River. Yeah, on yeah. the East River. And oatmeal disappears. Oatmeal and disappears. then she has a uh, cartoonish fall into the water. Yeah, I think at this point, the idea was that death still felt like it had stakes. I love the idea of her drowning because, you know, people, I, I always think it's so funny when people are like, drowning is a very peaceful way to die. And I'm like, how does anyone know that? But I don't know. It just, when the premise was settled on, I thought in my head, I don't know if I voiced this to anybody, but I was like, I really hope we can drown her at some point. How do you shoot physical comedy where you're using stunt doubles? Where there's a mix of, I imagine, Natasha at some point with her own physical count. Oh, yes. Yeah. A lot of it is dictated by the restrictions, meaning, you know, when you're hitting somebody with the car or when they're falling off that particular railing at, at the East River where, you know, we had their pad set up and so on, you really do defer to your stunt coordinator mm-hmm. and you say, I like to move backwards from the stunt and go, what's the safest thing for the stunt person so that we can get the most impressive looking stunt? They say this thing and then I kind of go to first team and say like, okay, so how can we make this funny? How can we make this interesting? Does this work for what you're doing? If not, how can we adjust it with both of you? When she wakes or wakes up, when she comes back to life, she spits out water. Which was a last minute decision. I got to say that was that we did two takes where she didn't do that. And then the third take, I was like, oh, just drink this, just spit this water out. We'll just see what it looks like. And then when we turned around on the other side, we did it again. And and I kind of thought to myself, like, that won't make any sense. But we'll just get it, just in case. 
And um, and at the end of the day, when we were looking at it in the edit, I just felt like, uh, and I think you know everybody felt this way too, that it just sold the drowning even more. Oh, you know, like because you know that underwater, there was a lot of underwater stuff that we shot, but we couldn't fit all of it into the sequence. But I, what was funny was that 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 just that little moment, that little theater nerd moment of like put some water in your mouth, I think sold it better than any of the stuff we shot. You've talked about like oh, we establish all the rules ahead of time, and then this is the thing on the fly. You're like, well, let's try this out and see. Was it a matter of in the ad? You're like, let's see what the tone is of this. Yes, and, yeah, and yeah. Not yeah. worry. Like, it seems like there's rules, and then there's ultimately like, there's a tone, and there's there's allowed to be a mystery. Yes. of what it is. Yes, I mean, I felt like when we were when we were working at, on the show in the writers' room, it it was like, here are the rules. This is the logic. We cannot stray from this logic. If we stray from this logic as to how somebody got into the elevator at this particular moment, then we, you know, it's, mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of fear from all of us that was like, the show won't work if we don't, you know, adhere to all of this. Once we started shooting, because I was shooting the first three episodes. It's just been my experience on my other on on my two films that I was like the, when I was in the edit I was always thinking I wish I'd gotten this I wish mm-hmm. I just tried that I wish that that voice in my head that was like no 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 it's this way I just ignored it for a second and just gotten an opportunity or a or a, a random thing of this kind of thing and, and I noticed that I started especially in in because I was working on two comedies on my films that you know it was really these tiny little moments that you ended up putting in yeah. and whether it was improv or it was a scripted line but it was read in a different way that you thought it was going to happen yeah. or maybe it was just just even like a classic kind of Coen Brothers moment where the pause is the funny part, you know, like, so allowing the story to surprise you in the edit was something that I felt like we needed to like kind of loosen up once we got on set and go, this may technically not work, but I think once we get it as scripted, it's worth trying X. So death number three is in episode two. She's on the phone call with John. Um, (laughs) And she tells him to fuck other people. All right. You know what? Do me a favor, John, all right? Just start fucking other people, okay? It's been six months. Hey, I fuck a lot of people. And then she falls down a cellar door. And the funniest part is throws her phone. (laughs) That was, um, that was the stunt double. Like, that was just something that happened. And when we watched it back, I think we had playback on that day because it was a stunt. And we, I was like, Did that is that her phone? Like, it, like as we were in <laughs> the edit, like with like the color correction and yeah. stuff, I was like, can we bump that up somehow? I was like, I'm so glad you noticed because I was like, that is absurd. Well, that there, her phone... it is like there's a little sound and it's just like, Blink. Boop, boop, boop. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. And I have to say, you know, not to toot our own horns or whatever but when we screened the first three episodes um in a theater for the premiere that got when she came back into the bathroom that got the hugest round of applause like which i was so you know i mean it was a friendly audience it's mostly people that worked on the show and friends and stuff but i think people just really weren't expecting it kind of the idea was that the show kind of lulls you into this place of like maybe she won't die you know what i mean like yeah. well, maybe 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 this is maybe the dying thing is going to go away now and now we're going to do this and she's moved into the next day which is not the rules of uh groundhog day so you're not sure maybe it isn't that yeah. maybe it's another thing and then you know i think they just felt the magic trick of like oh you tricked us oh fuck that this is what the show's about we forgot you know like and again that kind of mirrors for me the the kind of regular existential dread of like oh right i forgot i'm gonna die that's right yeah none of this is worth it. I think it also helped. It's like the definitive New York 
death. I De- absolutely that too. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think that also could have. Uh, it was a, the premiere was in New York at the Metrograph. It's like every New Yorker, I think, in the world to this day. By the way, I still like even though I did a whole fucking bit about <laughs> yeah. it. I'm like, oh my god, these things are killing me. And then uh, speaking of, she does the exact same thing three minutes later. The same. Yeah. The same cellar door. We called this the Frogger death. In the <laughs> we didn't know what it was going to be yet, but we just kept saying, "Wait, she should have some sort of, you know, cannot." It ended up being falling down the stairs. Yes, but, of course. But we were like, we, she she should have some kind of moment here. And it, it's funny, that was one of those logic versus tone things that we were kind of like, but why is she dying? Is she dying because she's not supposed to get past this point? Like, does this mean something? Yeah. Um, so she falls on the cellar again because she runs, she sees Ferran with Alan. She doesn't know it's Oh, Alan. yes, yes, yes. That's the guy I was talking about. Ferran? Ferran! That's your friend! No! Again? Those things are a menace! Is it she's drawn to Alan? Do you want to say, like, this is how careless she currently is in her current state, that she dies in the exact same way? I think that, well, but I think because Alan is kind of the the Baltese Falcon for her. Like, you know, he is the MacGuffin, essentially. Like, mm-hmm. even earlier in that episode when he says, um, she's like, hey, is your friend all right? She's assuming that everything is the same yes. all the time for everybody because that's what's been happening to her narcissistically. She mm-hmm. assumes it's all, you know, just revolving around her. And when Ferran says nobody was in here last night, I don't know what you're talking about, she realizes that something might have been different that wasn't just her. And it was also important to me that you see Alan in all three episodes, even though you don't get really introduced to him until the end of episode three. So he does have these like tiny little moments in episode one, two, and three where you barely see, you basically see the back of his head um, or he kind of wipes camera. And so I felt like because he was the white, you know, he's the new white rabbit, he's the new oatmeal. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like to me, it felt like, well, it would just be funny if like it's, we make it such a huge enough moment with the camera move and the music and all that kind of stuff that when she falls down this, the exact same, (laughs) cellar door <laughs> um the stairs so it happens three times in a row this is also the most video game feeling it's like yes. this is a level and you have yeah. to get past this level yeah. which is ultimately don't do this anymore <laughs> <laughs> but so i mean you've talked about you're the sort of gamer of the three creators yes yeah yeah, yeah. i love what, video games what is yeah. it about the vocabulary about video games that sort of when you're tasked with sort of uh, it was like Amy and Natasha gave you a puzzle and they said, make this into a puzzle. Yeah. What was it about the vocabulary of video games that worked that sort of wasn't available about the, voc- the current existing vocabulary of TV and movies? Well, I just always loved the narrative structure of video games. Like, I'm even a little bit of a prequel apologist because I think it introduced the concept of video game uh uh, narrative, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, like if if Lucas used the monomyth for the OT, like that the prequels um, introduced the idea of like cutscene, action sequence, cutscene, boss scene sure. that that we all follow to this day. I mean, yeah. the, the movies are not very good, but they do introduce instead of a hero's journey, um, a, a, a pacing that we've all kind of become accustomed to. Um, obviously, there are incredible, amazing. Um, 
uh, once we kind of settled on this kind of video game asp- aspect, there are so many different games that we could have chosen from, you know, a lot of the like, you know, Heavy Rain, D- Detroit Becoming Human, like the different kind of choose your own adventure mm. aspect of like, okay, if this one part's not working, maybe I'll switch to this other part. But I also, ha- having played like, you know, um, single player campaign games like Uncharted or um, God of War or whatever, like, you know, I there is this rush of like, I am going to get through this. I am going to beat this level. And if I do not beat this level, I'm, my my fingers are going to bleed. And yeah. then like, you know, I'm going to reward my, like, there's something about the reward aspect of that, that I think is missing a little bit from um, television. I think television is still in that weekly kind of like, you see us on Monday, we'll see you next Monday. And as we move into streaming into different platforms and different ways of consuming the content of quote unquote TV, I kind of felt like we were missing that media, video game moment. Where you have to earn another episode or earn another, yeah. keep on going. Or even the character at least yeah. has to earn it. You know what I mean? Like it isn't just like A story, B story, C story. Um, You know, A story gets resolved at the end of, of that episode, but maybe the B story continues into the next one. It's like, well, if we're watching four straight hours of content, it isn't really, it doesn't really need to be set up that way yeah. anymore. And so actually what you could do is you could create a binge show, meaning a show that just, like not necessarily that you binge, but that is meant to be binged, that you would start utilizing video game um, narrative structure the way that movies have been using them for almost 20 years yeah. now. How did you shoot it? I imagine it was all one day. Yes. As one person fell as on one time. As we threw her down the stairs. <laughs> we threw her down the stairs so many times. We never thought ah! oh, Sweet birthday baby. Why are you doing this? Watch it. Ah, Sweet birthday baby. Is this a sick fucking fantasy? This is going well. Baby. Look, I got bigger fish to fry, okay? I gotta figure out how to get down the stairs. This was one of those things, too, that I think that there were four deaths were scripted, but then we ended up only doing three mm-hmm. or something like that. Like, they, like, it was one of those things that on the day of... Um, we had to keep in mind, like later when she talks to Ruth, like how many, like we, I think we had her say, yeah, like said- I died three times or I died four times or whatever it was. Yeah. And then once we had decided on what we were going to use in the edit, when once she meets Alan, we got kind of slipped into their mouths, like what what the number was. Because of course, you know, again in prep, we're thinking we have to have the exact right number. Mm. But then when you're there on your, the day and you realize there's only kind of three interesting ways to throw this person down the stairs and not four, mm-hmm. you kind of have to go like we're just going to make the decision that. You know, I remember too. If if I'm remembering correctly, Chris Place, our stunt coordinator, was like. You know, you can do one more. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, it's like, and at that point, you're like, you can't be like, well, there are four scripted. It's like, well, we we can't throw her down any more stairs. So, were you telling her the ways to fall, or ultimately a stunt person knows ways to fall? Uh, no, we did it. Uh, we did it with Natasha first, yeah. and kind of talked about like what would the character actually do. So she comes back for the second time. How would you avoid this? If the first fall is this, then what would you do to avoid? And then Chris would pitch ideas. Becca would pitch ideas like, oh, when you avoid this person, maybe you hit this thing and you fall over. Um, but she was always supposed to fall over the edge yeah. that that final time, however many times it was. The rhythm of it 
remind me a lot of the rhythm of a lot of the things that you've done. Like this, oh, thank you. Like specifically Bachelorette and the movie and the play, right? There's like a certain sort of pace that they have. Yeah. It, even though this is less dialogue, it's a certain sort of like farce pace. Yes. And ma- like manic pace. How would you describe it? And how do you sort of achieve that when it's a thing in an edit opposed to a thing where you're like, okay, talk at this. It's hard. It's like um, you do have to figure it out. I think it's because I'm heavily influenced by, um, you know, uh, P- the Peter Bogdanovich movie, What's Up Doc, and American Musicals. <laughs> like those are really the two big main reasons. I think, and, and it's funny. It's when I, you're, you're, you're right to kind of point out that it started in theater. That it started as this kind of like, you know, I was treating scenes as if they were musical sequences. Mm-hmm. Meaning, um, not that it was like it had to happen as, as at a particular pace, but that things had to happen at the same time other things were happening Um, and I think it's because physical comedy and uh, as a result like you know um, whatever verbosity goes along with that is like very important to me in landing both the tone and the actual joke so in this particular instance this was a lot of um, real just down and dirty elbow grease work with um, Laura Weinberg who Mm -hmm. was our editor for that sequence it was it was you know it was written out in that episode by a me and Natasha about like and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens but as far as like having all those little insert shots like that was something that I believe we decided as we were going through Chris Teague the the cinematographer and I kind of went through and kind of going we need enough building blocks to make sure that this that we can get this to a particular place and also like you know we had the great Harry Nielsen do you know what I mean like we had this like perfect song exactly so we're so it would be like you're improvising drums on top of it yeah like on top of it you're trying to also on top of one of the greatest songs ever written you're trying to also add stuff to it and so that was very very difficult and a lot of it is Laura um the sound mixers you know what I mean like honestly like mixing in like what's important to hear what's not important to hear like when do you want Harry when do you not want Harry um when do we want to cheat in you know like kind of an extra bar when we need it all of that kind of stuff it all comes down to orchestrating something that at the end of the day you can't really describe to someone else but it's like when you all are watching it you know it's right in this scene in this stretch Nadia says this is like the game I'm Michael Douglas that's an improv from Natasha. <laughs> I was wondering because, you know, they, you, you've talked. It's amazing. About, I was so happy. I was like, well, oh, this is my favorite. But you have talked about how um, you you said in one quote that I really liked. I, I'm coming up in the play, Ready Player One generation of everybody knowing all the references. So it's not fun to just put them in anymore. So I don't even bother. I'm just this is a story. I'm assuming everyone knows the things that we're referring to. Yeah. So and then you say this. Is, it's very post, 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 postmodern. <laughs> they're not meant to be real. But I think. In your work pre this, there's a certain everyone's heightened, and you're like, this is either heightened to be satire or heightened to sort of like this is not real. And I think, especially in plays, this is a generation where a lot of new playwrights do not like yeah. setting things at like a kitchen table on Thanksgiving. Right, right, right. Although I do, but <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're like, absolutely right. Yeah. I, um, where you also talk about Natasha would always be like, make it grounded. What was the what was the balance you were trying to go? How did you sort of keep on going back and forth? With it? I think it really, I, this is a, true, the true answer to this question is like, it's such a great question, but the really true answer for this particular moment is that no one makes me laugh as hard as Natasha Leon. Yeah. Like, I, she just makes me laugh so hard that I 
I stop everything and just like bend over and just keep laughing. And like, if I'm remembering correctly, it may have been a scripted line, but if I'm remembering correctly, we were doing it as a series. We kind of got the shot. Mm. And then I said, will you just come in and say some other stuff? And that's one of those jokes that it was like, even if it's like technically a reference and maybe we don't want to reference these things, it made me laugh so unbelievably hard that I was like, this is going in. You know, listen, sometimes stuff is funny on set and it's not in the edit, but there were a lot of things that she did that I just felt like we have to put that in. I just think that's so you. It's so the character. Mm-hmm. It's so that particular, you know, that Orson Welles joke of like, you know, the trouble with film is it comes in a can, you know, <laughs> like it's like, so when do you can things when they're the freshest, you know, like it's like those moments were the moments that felt just the freshest, yeah. you know, like they just felt like this is exactly yeah. who you are and who this character is. So death number nine, which comes at the end, she's in the ambulance. Uh, oh, yeah. And it's, it's the three guys. And, you know, it's interesting if you just look at, if you've just read it and there's no stage direction, you're like, they're just having a normal conversation until that guy says the thing about, I can't remember, I can't remember what he says, but he says something like this. Hey, what, what's going on back there? We got a redhead on board? Fire in the hole! <laughs> <laughs> hey man, you kiss your mommy with that mouth? Ultimately, how do you direct it and write it so tensions are increasing even though everyone's hypothetically saying the appropriate thing? It, this was something that I think really comes down to, you know, Natasha's performance in the t- in, in the sense that she never really kind of overplays what's going on. Like that kind of like ar- eyes darting back and forth kind of being like, mm, I don't know, you know, like you kind of she knows what's interesting is that she knows as, as somebody who's probably one of the most gifted physical comedians. Mm-hmm. She actually does know when to be still like she knows when to not move and when not moving would do more than moving. Um, it also helps that, you know, you're in a crowd. You know, ambulance and so on and so forth. But I really, re- I remember working on that scene with her and them, and really feeling that feeling of like, for a character that's been so you know frenetic and erratic, for her to be so contained in that moment, and suddenly re- like kind of noticing how her own autonomy is going to be stripped from her if she makes this decision, and how she might want to just take her chances out there in her existential mm-hmm. nightmare rather than turn herself over to, because I mean, it is also, uh, that scene is also um, acknowledging kind of a logic question, right? Which is like, wouldn't you think you were just going crazy? Yeah, like, yeah. wouldn't you just go to, and you know, Groundhog Day handles this really well by him going to the therapist, the one therapist in the town who's played by Selena, Selena Meyer's ex-husband. And he's <laughs> like, I don't know, I'm not really a therapist. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, and that's kind of the answer, you know, yeah. like as someone that has, had a lot of like good experiences with mental um, mental health um, rehabilitation and also some very kind of darker um, mm. experiences with it. It was important to um, give a sense in that scene that possibly what Nadia might be more scared of, even more than death, would be the loss of autonomy and the loss of choice. And so at what we decided to have symbolized that was the medallion from yep. the mom, that they ask her to remove it. And it's at that point that she's like, no, I don't think so. Okay, can we have that necklace then? Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's my mom's. So I'd rather not. So you... You started as a playwright in, in some ways professionally, but you knew you wanted to be a director. Do you hear scenes or see scenes? Ooh, good question. <laughs> it's half and half. You know, with 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 Russian Doll, it was a lot of seeing it. It was a lot of like 
you know, especially in the writer's room, because I'd never, you know, run a writer's room before. So I, I really struggled with kind of explaining like, but this is how I see it. Like, mm-hmm. this is the next shot. And then this is this shot. And everyone's kind of looking at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> like, can you pitch a story? And I'm like, yeah. oh, God, I don't know how to explain it. Like, I, I don't know how to explain that they're in two different dimensions unless I say this is where someone's standing. Like, even mm-hmm. that I, I won't when they run into each other at the end in, in episode eight. Um, I, the only way I could think to describe it to the writer's room was to actually make a diagram of the deli explain where everyone was and at which moment they were seeing which version of themselves because otherwise it just like uh, what do you say like beta Alan says this thing (laughs) alpha Nadia says this thing I just it was too confusing to me but I will say that there are times where I just hear it well talking about at least hearing it this has a a rhythm that I've heard you talk about which is like one line one line one line 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 and then stop what is going on back there Um, but so, and I think it cuts to special comedy writing. Using death as a button in scenes is a really interesting choice. Yes, yeah. How did you think about it when you were thinking about comedic notes or just sort of scripting of like? Sometimes you want to be unexpected, and in that case, it is exactly what would happen. Sort of in the sort of in many ways struggle. Of, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a weird way, that was a death that I wanted everyone to kind of long for <laughs> if death kind of wanted to point point out to the audience that like the death wasn't always going to be an interruption you know the yeah. death would be kind of a get out of jail free card do you yeah. know what i mean like so you wouldn't necessarily think of death like again each death is about redefining death for the audience tonally like mm-hmm. to me like i think it also represents a lot of things thematically and for the for the character and so on and so forth but the way what really grounded me as we were working on the show was that i was like what is the audience's relation to death at this point what does it mean to them that she dies here and for for like what do we need to express to them and so what we wanted i wanted to express was a feeling of like you got out yeah you made it you did it um I remember even after that, when we were pitching at the outline, I was like, maybe she just like has fun at the party for a little bit or somebody else <laughs> yeah. pitched it or whatever. And I just thought, oh, yes, absolutely. Of like, of course, like this is the death where she's like, I did it, <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> well, it's like it's almost like it, she got used to it. And like we're all used to we're it. all kind of used to it. Yeah. That by the end of that first hour, we're all used to it. We're all we get like the different facets of it. We get that it can, it can be scary. We get that it can be used as a punctuation mark. We get that it can also be used as an escape route, yeah. like to be able to start at the beginning. And now um, I, I think it was Alison Silverman that said, you know, we have to figure out when the audience. Sorry, not when the audience, but when Nadia is going to treat this like it's objectively happening, mm-hmm. not like it's a mental problem or a, a figment of her imagination. But this is actually now the new environment that she lives in. And so I think we achieved that pretty well at the end of uh, at the end of episode two. Episode three, you have the longest time until she dies. So she uh, meets up with Horse. Horse gives her a haircut. She's, she says she looks like her mom. They go to sleep. It's cold. It's fucking cold. <laughs> how do you decide on that one? Cause, and how do you realize you had to have her address that that is dark? Rose to death. Jesus fucking Christ, that's dark. If I'm remembering correctly, it was something, it was some version of we would get to a point in the story, we'd be like, okay, this is where narratively, emotionally, it makes sense for her to die. Like, this is kind of the end of this vignette or end of this lesson or whatever it was. And so when we got to her and horse and the scene, it was like, 
okay, let's start pitching. And I think somebody pitched, they freeze to death, and someone said, that's really dark. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think that's probably where the joke came D- from. There's no deaths of despair on her, or which is essentially suicide or drug overdose, or... Oh, yes, that's true. This is the, clo- this is the closest in so much as, like, directly yeah. related to um, uh, dangerous behavior or antisocial yeah. behavior. What was th- that line of, like, we can have it be... She, I mean, it's ultimately what about her or this character? Like, well, this is not how she would die. I think because the story is kind of psychologically about that, it was important that we didn't actually show that for her character. We end up talking about it with Charlie, you know, like, but for her character, I think that we didn't want to explicitly say that this person had a death wish in a way that they were going to actually do it to themselves. She has, in my opinion, the type of methodology that's more like, um, I'm so tough that nothing can hurt me. And if it does, good for it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so, you know, if the cold dead of winter gets me, then fine. You know, like if uh, if, a, if a speeding cab gets me, then fine. But I'm not going to go out, um, you know, based on uh, I'm tough enough mm-hmm. that I'm not going out based on, like you said, uh, you know, a death of despair or um, suicide, suicide self poisoning, yeah. any of that kind of stuff. You are right, though, that we did we did did think the tenor of this scene was one of kind of a death of despair, like a little bit of just feeling like, you know, she's just been called the abyss, you yeah. know, like that she feels a little bit like I, you know, nothing matters. None of this stuff matters. Um, she's hitting a little bit of a, a low point, I think, emotionally and psychologically in this journey of dying and coming back. What we thought was interesting was the idea of having some her, having her suddenly care about someone else. That suddenly yeah. she'd be like, I wonder if that person that I died with was okay. This is one that's a little bit more mysterious. Like, she could have froze to death, but he could be fine. So, Death Eleven happens twice. Uh, I will... I'm, oh, I'm the elevator. The elevator. Yeah. So, it happens once at the end of the episode, which is a different thing... Because I imagine lots of people when they heard the show was like, oh, I bet she dies at the end of every episode. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, so we wanted to subvert that until we got a bit. But again, part of subverting is also engaging in it. That's yeah. why I think this like subverting expectations <laughs> thing that's happening on the internet is such a bummer. Because part of subver- subverting expectations is also delivering yeah. on expectations. It's going like, oh yeah, remember? Here's the show you thought it was going to be. And everyone's like, oh, got it. Oh, yeah. cool. But it's the show you thought it was going to be plus another character. Yeah. It's now a two-player game instead of a, uh, a single player. So in... The end of episode uh, three, uh, Nadia goes. Man, didn't you get the news? We're about to die. It doesn't matter. I die all the time. In episode four, same thing. Man, didn't you get the news? We're about to die. It doesn't matter. I die all the time. But then Nadia goes. Me too. Is this? On purpose? It seems like it's... <laughs> it is on purpose. Okay. Um, again, logically, <laughs> it doesn't quite make sense. Sure. But meaning if it happened before, you would have seen it again. Yeah. Um, and it was, but it was something on purpose. It was something that, you know, because episode three is edited by a different um, editor than episode four, because that's the way television works for whatever reason. We watched them both back to back. We kind of decided, do we like that? Do we not like that? Um what we thought was interesting was withholding the Me Too, mm-hmm. um, withheld it from, uh, the reason I, I can't speak for everybody else, but the reason I voted for keeping it different the second time was that if she says Me Too, and then you try to backtrack and tell the beginning of Alan's story, yeah. you don't get the same 
bump that you feel at the beginning of the second act of, of episode four, which is me too, and then him feeling like, oh, I'm not alone. Yeah. Whereas like if you heard it at the end of three, at the beginning of four, you'd be wondering why he isn't having this experience, like why he isn't kind of referencing her. So it's a little trickery, <laughs> but it is technically the same death. And I guess in the universe, she always said me too. We just didn't show it to you yeah. at, at the end of episode three. As we now meet Alan, I... I I want to talk about Alan in one sense in so much as uh, yeah. you said that uh, a lot of Russian dolls about ego. Natasha's a character. Nadia represents the id and Alan represents the super ego and yes. they're in conflict with each other. But I want to talk about further, but also in a way at the beginning, the show's a little bit like a fish out of water story in terms of like the water is time. And then when Alan is introduced, it's now like an odd couple. And now it's like, <laughs> but like an odd couple road trip, but now the trip is done. <laughs> Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, so oh, why? God, I love that. Why Alan? Alan was actually originally in the pilot when we wrote the pilot for Netflix to kind of sell them on the show. Um, so we definitely knew that there was going to be this foil. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like the question was, how much does this foil know about the universe? Once we just meaning like, is there is he a puppet master in some way? Like, does he already know? Mm-hmm. Is he you know? So once we decided like. We decided we didn't want him to be so knowledgeable about her that it kind of got boring. But we did want him to seem like the master of this world in some way. So we thought, what kind of personality would like a day that repeated all the time? And we thought, oh, a personality of kind of an, you know, an OCD. This is based on a little bit on me, like the kind of OCD Mm. concept of a person that's like, great, I can get this right then. I can go on, I can do this over and over again, and I can feel um, a sense of control knowing what's going to happen before it happens. And every time I quote unquote mess up, it doesn't matter because I'm going to die and Mm. then I'm going to come back and I'm going to get another chance to do it again. Alan's personality was born out of the premise of the show. Like what person would, if if this is the fish, if if she's a fish out of water who's kind of bristling against this idea who would embrace it and who that who is that person in many ways a show like this does not star a character like nadia like Mm -hmm. she she, it's a bit like the long goodbye which is like why is this type of show have a person (laughs) like this yes where alan's like yeah it would happen to like a somewhat neutral man yes who's like an every man yeah who's like i'm going to like go about this world yeah and that in that way they're also sort of foils yes yeah yeah absolutely we're like Natasha is essentially pushing against the boundaries of what this show is. Yes. Yeah, Brown yeah, yeah. was like, yes, the boundaries of the show is exactly are, are exactly this, and I'm excited by it. He's or, also you know. like, oh, it's about morality. He just sort of is the foil of a person who's in the sort of, if you did a one-sentence line of what the show is, he's the, he's the person who believes that it's like, yes. they'd be like, oh, it's like Groundhog Day, but it's set right. in the East Village. Exactly, but set in the East Village with this nice gentleman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But but I do think that it part of you know when I read this very clever article after the show came out about the you know the reverse genders of the of the archetypes of the mm-hmm. roles that like you know Alan is kind of you know essentially our damsel in distress so to speak or our kind of like game you know sidekick you know what I mean like which is you know Nadia's character is kind of the quote unquote male character the kind of messy character it is usually like you know the straight man is usually your hero and this you know the the manic pixie dream girl comes in fucks everything up and then they have an experience you know what if you switch all of those things like you just completely mad libs like that whole concept and then you have you know hopefully Russian doll, you know. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Well, I think so. so uh, Death Twelve. We do not 
see how Nadia dies. We don't know how Nadia dies. Yes. We, but we assume she does. But uh, Alan dies of an electrocution from thro- after throwing his engagement ring into the water. So one, why did Alan die that way? But also, why not? This is the sort of only Nadia death that we have sort of no sense of. To show you a little bit of how the sausage is made, we shot deaths for both of them in this episode, and they were scripted that way. What we found when we got into the edit was that we were kind of like, wait a minute, it's a little bit of a mystery if you don't show the other death, that by the time they realize that their deaths are linked, that they're dying at the same time, if you keep that away from the audience for a little bit longer, then they're a little more intrigued by it. So again, it's like a show that was steeped so deeply Mm -hmm. in logic and so much to the fact that like if he's going to die then we have to show how she's going to die and then actually a lot of production as well as you know post-production was about kind of putting back in the mystery of like you're not going to know how she died and honestly it doesn't matter because the most important thing that you're going to learn at the end of this is they're dying at the same time their deaths are linked linked and then at the top of six they say our lives depend on each other like in in a very different way than we're used to hearing that particular turn of phrase but how did Nadia die right then Oh gosh, I don't remember. <laughs> it may have been some version of the gas leak or some version of 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 her going to see Ruth, but Ruth or maybe Ruth didn't die that first time. I don't remember. Yeah. But we did shoot it. But it, it may have been some sort of riff on the gas leak. So yeah. uh episode five, this was that was it was like a uh Chekhov's gas leak. We're now talking about the gas leak. <laughs> uh, um what precedes the gas leak is Ruth becomes a much more important character when we watch it the second time. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, she she was when we were writing it. But like, yeah. when you're watching the first time, you're following the thing. You're like, oh, yeah. what? but like, then you watch it again. You're like, oh, Ruth. If she just listened to she Ruth, she just listened to Ruth <laughs> the whole thing. Because Ruth like, is very, you know, she talks. She asks Ruth, "Are you prepared to die?" And goes, "Yes and no." And it's about yeah holding two ideas at the same time and it goes right now i'm looking at you as you are today while i'm also looking at you as a peculiar little girl i knew yeah right and then she gives him the card and then the gas leak Where do you want the audience to be at this moment? Where is Nadia at this moment? I think Alan has kind of posed something at the top, which is a th- he's kind of proposed a thesis at the top, which is that we're being punished. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, which is something that I think probably um, the audience has already thought of at this point, right? Like, you know, um, if you're familiar with this trope as an audience member, as a as a person alive in our culture, like you know that usually this kind of purgatorial mm-hmm. re- repeating of behavior means that you have some sort of moral lesson to learn. And so we thought it would be interesting to have Alan just explicitly say it. Say, like, I believe that I'm being (laughs) tortured for something and not really have anything to point to as, like, oh, I think I did this really bad thing. Mm. Um, But ultimately, like, I'm definitely being punished for something. Um, What I think is interesting about the character of Nadia is that this had not occurred to her until that moment, and it's one of the reasons I love her. It's why I love amoral characters, not immoral characters, but characters that are kind of like, why are you looking at my morality? Get out of here. You know what I mean? Like, And I think part of the reason I love amoral characters is that it makes the audience who is just because they're neutral they're automatically amoral like yes like their their own morality will sink in as they see things like you know if you're uh, a deeply conservative person and you're seeing a lot of violence or you're seeing a lot of 
premarital sex or you're seeing like, you know, whatever it is that sure. like really, you know, it will start to go in there, you know, and it will start, your morality will start to take hold of the story and start shaping the story in the way that it thinks that you should. But most of the time, if you're doing your job right, they've stayed in a position of amorality. You know what I mean? Like, or if they're, you know, optimal viewers, you know, they stayed in that position. Um, and so by the time we get to here, I'm hoping that the audience is still open and neutral enough that they're hearing what Ruth is saying. It's kind of fine if you don't hear what yeah. she's saying at that moment, because ne neither does Nadia. Nadia doesn't really put it together either. But the idea that Ruth is the antithesis to his thesis, she's saying like there is, it's not that there is no good and bad, it's that they both exist at the same time and we're both of them at the same time, which is very Jungian as well, sure. like the shadow self and you know, the more you repress it, the more you become it, you know, so on and so forth, or the more you torture the other and so on and so forth. So I think what I'm hoping is that the audience is in a state of enough curiosity that they would be questioning his thesis at this point, yeah. even if they don't agree with her anti-thesis, uh, Ruth's anti-thesis. Yeah, they are focusing on the question of the episode, opposed to the question of this series or the— right. Like, right. If, if you stopped, right, if this was a serialized show and this yeah. you had a week, you yeah. might be like, what did Ruth say? And let's right, talk. right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Which I think yeah. why it particularly works for the, for the format. But it's, it's which is why when I rewatch it, you're like, oh, if you sort of follow just the Ruth scenes, you're like. Yes, you're she, gonna... she tells you everything. And that's not to say that, like, therapists are always yeah. right or, like, blah, blah. But that's why we made her a therapist and a family member. Yes. We made her, like, basically a two for one. <laughs> Which is like, you know, if you go to the source, you go to the you go to the source of your pain or you go to the solution for your pain, you're probably going to get some version of the answer you're looking for. You may not be ready to receive it. Do you know what I mean? In the same yeah. way, the audience is not really ready to receive it quite yet. But we did tell you. Yeah. We did warn you. <laughs> um, then Alan gets hit by a car uh, while complaining. Oh, yes. Alan gets hit by a car. We don't see the second gas leak, but... You but she comes out and says, gas explosion again. again. I get hit by a car. Oh, classic. Hey, wait a second. <laughs> so good. It is like a very A story, B story yes. episode. Yeah, it really is. I think it's kind of our only one. Like, was that we we realized that we, we would get more mileage out of the episode if we split them up. Yeah. If we had them. But... The, the hard part of that episode, and I think, you know, the writers, in, in addition to the, the you know, Jocelyn Bio who wrote that episode, you know, really worked it out in, in the sense of we have to justify keeping them apart for as long as we do. Yeah. Because really, you would think, like, if you found this person, you're <laughs> yeah. going to assume yeah, some exactly. sort of, you know, connection with them. But the idea, the thing that I think sells it is that Nadia's character is, we've established her as such a lone wolf, as a person that has no friends. Um, I mean, has friends, but no, like, very, especially not people that she doesn't know. People she isn't, she isn't um, you know, kind of, that aren't kind of already, uh, like, approving of her lifestyle, so and to she speak. And she has people, she's not close, she, I mean, like, I think there's a amount of not closeness she has as a character, yes. right, for a variety of reasons that we yeah. established, I can't remember which episode at this point, but where she doesn't want to meet the girl because she doesn't want to die, or, like, right, so right. there is that, it's sort of built in that makes sense. So, yes, I th you think at first they'd, they would divide and conquer, but also right. there's, like, a structure that would make sense for that as well. Yes, it's a structure that really works. I think it was just hard for us to figure out how to justify it. And I think the thing that really clicked for me was that the Mike character sort of represents the real, like, if Ruth kind of represents, like, the other counter-argument, mm. like, Mike just represents, like, the thing that we cannot explain, which is why do th certain things go unpunished? Yeah. If we are, you know, like, if there is this balance in the universe, if this is actually some sort of, like, a moral conundrum, why is it that people go unpunished for their bad behavior? Yeah. 
behavior. And um, and I think that's really what he, we realized was the B story, was him kind of making peace with the fact that, like, right, it, it, it can't be that because here's this person that's misbehaving yeah. and there will always be that type of behavior in the universe and it will go unchecked for whatever reason. So uh, later in that episode, not, uh, Nadia goes back to Ruth's bed at night and gets shot oh, yeah. by Ruth. <laughs> And you see, it's in slow motion. You see a close over her face, and then you see Ruth crying. <laughs> Sorry, it's not funny. I mean, it's, it is funny. It is, it is this. I mean, it's- I always think it's hysterical. Like, I always just start laughing so hard. I remember we screened it, like, early on, and, and I think... Somebody watched that scene and felt, I can't remember who it was, like a producer or one of the editors or something, and was just so affected by it. And I was just like laughing my head off. I just think it's so funny. I don't know. It's not. Why, it's not funny. Why, but why, why do you have that there? That is, it's it's maybe slightly less dark than her freezing to death, but it's really sad. It's so sad. And I, 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 I'm, it's not supposed to be funny. I just think it's funny because it's so sad and that's my weird sure. like knee-jerk reaction. But if, as as I was saying before, like if if death has to move back and forth between having stakes, you know, Nadia's not the type of, she's, she's kind of smart enough that like, in a way, Alan's realization at the end of that episode is not going to work for her. Like, she kind of already knows the bad... Like, she says at the beginning, yeah. there's Hitler and then there's everybody else. You know what I mean? Like, she already lives by that particular standard. You know what I mean? Like, so what is it that she has to understand? And I think what she... What dawns on her in this episode, it's not that it actually, like, necessarily sinks in in the same way, but what dawns on her in this episode is that her... Is that is that in seeing Ruth mourn her, she wonders for for just a split second if that might have happened every time she died because she experienced it once. Mm -hmm. We never actually get to see people, like we always say like, you know, we're gonna come back to my funeral and you're not invited and blah, blah, blah. But we actually don't have any control after that. She's realizing she doesn't have as much control as she kind of felt at the end of that second episode of kind of nobody locks us up. You know, it's like all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, if she's that upset at that moment, I guess there is this etch a, there is this etch a sketch version, which is that I just come back and everybody else comes back. Yeah. But what if they don't? What if they keep going? She says, and I think that it's it's a big idea, but we I think that with a character like Nania who has such a big brain, she needed to have a big idea yeah. there. It wasn't enough for her to just. And so when she goes to see. Um, what she realizes is that stringing along John in whatever you know version of her multiverse that she's living in, it's wrong no matter what. Even if there is a restart, even if he doesn't remember it, even if he, you know, like it's still wrong. Like you know, if if it's morality without consequences, do you still make the right choice even if you're not going to get punished for it? That's her question. Yeah. And so she, it's kind of big and kind of broad and like not broad, but it's kind of convoluted. But it's something that we felt like was big enough. For for her character to hold on to. Yeah. But I don't know if you really get it until it's like a second run through or not. But yeah, I think that's why it's called like the, what is it called? The superiority complex, that episode? Like, yeah, just the idea that these are two people who do consider themselves to be, you know, he considers himself to be morally superior yeah. just by the fact that he thinks he should be not morally yeah. superior. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and that she's somebody that I think sees morality as this thing that is always going to be self-serving it basically yeah. self-serving as morality and then she realizes like oh it's worth it to do the right thing no matter no matter how many chances you get so i, I want to talk about death 16 and 17 at the same time okay a, you'll see why uh at the end of episode five they meet up and i and they go i think we're dying at the same time i told you i think that we're dying at the same time air conditioner falls on them then six, uh, then six <laughs> minutes into episode six, they both realize we're both allergic to bees. 
Nadia goes. Seriously? Ah, so I guess we're running a bunch of fucking honeybees now. So these deaths imply an outside force. Yeah. It's so immediate. They say a thing, a thing happens. Yeah. I haven't seen Jumanji in a while, the first Jumanji in a while, but I think there's like a Jumanji E thing. <laughs> but nonetheless, like it is the most like we're watching you of it. Yes, these are the I called them the Looney Tunes deaths in my head. Sure, you know yeah. what I mean. I don't know if I said that on the on in the edit or not, but yeah, the idea that like again, it, you know, I really wanted it to be a show that rewarded you for watching it in one sitting. Mm-hmm. So we didn't, you know, it, it, if you have been sitting there for three hours <laughs> or whatever it is, and you've gotten to this yeah. point, I would love to reward you by saying like, and you're right, like you know, like and you see what's happening, and you're wrong, yeah. you know, like. I, I felt like it was time to make death that big cartoon, you know, sledgehammer yeah, yeah. or that anvil from the sky that it was like we were heading this place no matter what. And it felt like it would be fun to really indulge it right before we knew things were going to get more emotional, yeah. basically. Like we knew we weren't going to. This was the broadest comedically we were going to be able to get. Yeah. And so it felt like what's the most satisfying kind of. Who said Unleash the bees. Oh, um, you know, like it. Imp- some is it. It's not. I mean, I, I mean, I, I would say everyone calls it by a different name. Do you know it. what I mean? Like I call it the universe. Sure. You know, like but I think other people would call it, you know, a higher power or a god or whatever it is. But I think, yeah, whatever intelligence is behind this entire thing, sure. which I wouldn't dare to try to explain. No, because but, I wouldn't do that in real life. But it, it but is that is what it is. Yeah. It definitely is a moment where. There goes. There's an intelligence, yes. or as, yes, yeah. which has not existed before. Yes, yes. It, there is an intelligence, and we, and I think it's it's not an accident that it happens after the morality discussion. Do you know what I mean? Because that's usually as far as we get when it comes to a higher power, right? It's like, oh, it's a higher power that's telling me whether or not I should do things right or wrong. Once we've established a grayer more morality area, like a grayer moral like playing field, like mm. then it becomes like, but then what? And yeah. then what? Yeah. You know what I mean? I feel like so much of the bigger existential questions in life are like, but then what happens? And then what happens? You know? Like, well, it's, it's it's basically being like, there is a universe, but that is not going to answer the question. You still have to make decisions of what you're doing. You have to make choices. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. I feel like there was a bit that we did about this in the show, but then ended up cutting out. But I remember there was something where she like said something kind of expecting it to like expecting death to happen. I guess we didn't, I don't remember what it was exactly, but. We'll be back with more Leslie Headland after this word from our sponsors. Did you know your teeth move as you get older? I mean, I didn't. And now that is going to be literally the only thing I ever think about. And also, if you want to get your teeth fixed, the last thing you want to do is wear braces. Well, I don't know, the last thing. Maybe the second last thing. The last thing you'd want to wear is uh, teeth poison. (laughs) Nonetheless, I am happy to tell you about Candid, the clear alternative to braces and to uh, teeth poison. <laughs> Candid has an experienced orthodontist who is licensed in your state to create a treatment plan for you, in which they'll create a 3D preview of how your teeth will look after your treatments are done. Once you approve your 3D preview, Candid creates a custom clear aligners that we send directly to you. So there's no hassle of going to an orthodontist's office, which are famously far away. And Candid costs 65% less than braces. 
And for every aligner purchased, Canon donates $25 to Smile Train, who brings safe, 100% free cleft lip and palate treatment to children around the globe. So get straighter, brighter teeth in average just six months. Learn more at CandidCO.com slash GoodOne and use the code GoodOne to get $75 off. That's CandidCO.com slash GoodOne, code GoodOne for $75 off. We are back with Leslie Headland. I've heard you describe generally the world is more nihilistic than the Groundhog Day universe in so much as the characters are existing regardless. Of, yes, 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 yes. But I was thinking about in terms of how that implies to sort of capital M meaning. And, we're, you know, we're talking about that there's a force and Natasha grew up religious in a way and you grew up very yes. religious in a way. Yeah. Do you feel like ultimately, even if you reject certain religious beliefs, do you feel like your brain yes. as a writer leads to like I mean, meaning? Yeah. I definitely do. I can't speak for Tashi and I can't speak for people that are brought up that way and kind of embrace atheism or agnosticism. But like, I have to say like, there's, it's just, there's a, uh, this is a, a, a joke phrase I heard a long time ago, which is like, it's when it's, I don't mean it literally, but it's like beaten into you when you're too young mm-hmm. to resist. Like I just will never, that will never not be in my head because of the way that I was raised. Like it just can't be, it's yeah. almost blasphemy in whatever it's like mental blasphemy. To Your not, brain has the connection. It just has that connection. It will always do it. I think that, you know, definitely you can teach your brain certain things. You can teach your body certain things, but I think it comes down to what Alan says in episode seven, which is like, no matter how much your brain lies to you your your body can't keep lying the way that your brain can mm-hmm. like at some point you break down in into the into the place of like I cannot keep up with with what my the connections that my brain is going and so for me that Christianity that way of living is not something that I can do anymore it's not something that ever really worked for me physically or emotionally but intellectually I'm not sure it will ever go away mm-hmm. as like in the same way that my perfectionism voice will never go away you know like in the same way that like certain phobias may never go away you know, it's like we can try to rewire certain things, but in some ways where we may be stuck in the way that the yeah. characters are. Um, so as you mentioned, these are th- these are the silliest deaths. Yes. In an interview, you said the word post-comedy once. And so that means you know the term. I invented the term. Oh, post- yes. Will you remind me what it means? So it's genius. So the, the idea was it's now been completely subverted by the alt-right. Oh, yeah, it sucks. It really sucks. I get Google alerts on it, and it's, and it's sad. But, really? Yeah, so what it meant was, essentially, it's comedy that is using the structure of comedy yeah. to tell things that are still comedy, but not necessarily for laughs. Right. So right. Um, the easiest was, like, Nanette was using the structure of stand-up, but yes. wasn't necessarily, like, laughs are the goals of it, but it is right. structured as stand-up. You'll see sitcoms that aren't necessarily funny, but that is not, not laugh funny, but funny. Funny, yeah. And the the post was not saying this was bad. It was just saying this existed. And then, side note, the alt right feels like I was implying that because comedy is political now, that means it's not funny, um, which it has n- truly that had nothing to do right, with it whatsoever. Right. Because most political comedians are joke writery people. Yeah. So if anything, they are strongly disprove it. Like yeah. they they like bring up Seth Meyers, and Seth Meyers literally invented the term clapter. Like he is the guy <laughs> who hated it the most. Oh man. And and this show has so this show has moments, right? We talked about the last episode where it has A story and B story that is using sitcom structure but subverting sitcom structure in a different yes. way. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in this moment it is comedy and you can do a show that does these things and not be comedy, but why is it a 
a comedy? I think that it it just has to be. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, it's almost like asking, you know, why are the fish swimming? Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, truly, the first time I ever wrote a script, I, I did a reading of it, like a public reading of it. And I thought I had written, like, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I thought it was a, I truly, it was like, I thought this is, I'm going to win a Pulitzer. You know, I was like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And then it started and like five lines in, people started laughing and they didn't stop the entire time. It was not intentionally, I did not yeah. think I was right writing jokes, quote unquote, like I didn't think that I had written a funny play. And I asked my friends afterwards, I was like, why were they laughing at everything? And they saw how upset I was. And I was like, they were like, just take it. It's good. You know, (laughs) like, and they said, they said, I think that you just are you know, funny. The yeah. way that you say things is so blunt, and the way that you put it is so blunt and so real that people are laughing because they don't really have any other reaction to it. Like, how else are they supposed to mm-hmm. respond to, you know, this dick joke that you said, you know, like, or this comment about whatever, you know? So I think that why why tell this story with comedy feels like I just kind of had to tell it that way. Um, and especially getting to this kind of like going over the hill with the depths of like, again, delivering it in a way that we knew the audience was expecting when they heard the premise of the show. Yeah. Like, you know, it's there's so many things that I I really approach a lot of my work with like they've already seen the trailer. They've already read three and think pieces last, about it. Yeah. And the the, tra- you know the I mean? deaths in the trailer are funny. Yeah, exactly. The deaths are funny in the trailer. Like it, it's just it's the kind of thing that like when you hear that your brain you're just there's it's a savvy enough audience now that their brains are already pitching. Yeah. They're already going like okay, so this thing would happen, this thing would happen, mm-hmm. this thing would happen, which is why like a Beyonce album or like a, an Avengers Infinity War kind of shocks us because we're like wait a minute, this doesn't fall into the way that if you you know had rolled out that album yeah. for six months, I would under, you know, I would think, oh, this is what's going to be on this album yeah. because I've seen, you know, seventeen different pieces about it. If you just drop it in my lap, I get to make all these connections that I didn't get to make before. You know, like um, same thing with like making a superhero movie where the villain is the superhero, quote yeah. unquote superhero. He wins, and you're like, I feel you're good like, for I'm him. Happy for him. I'm actually kind of glad he. You know, I even I know it's very controversial, but I actually kind of felt that way at the end of Game of Thrones for all of its flaws, like. Yeah. As Danny was walking up to the spoilers, uh, walking up to the throne, I was like, I'm happy for her. Like, I don't even care about what just happened, which is probably terrible and not what they expected. But yeah. like, I just kind of was like, I'm so con- I'm I'm almost conditioned now to root for people I'm not supposed to root for. I'm I'm I've been siding with Walter White for like you know six years now, so it's like I'm I'm already ready for this kind of shit. You know, yeah, what it's I mean? like it's not even like we need antiheroes. It was like villains that are the show. villains that are here now. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. we don't even need antiheroes anymore. Like yeah. it's true, it's true. So it just it feels to me like why comedy because comedy is probably the last van like the last bastion of a of a of a real surprising experience yeah. like a real like oh I didn't that's what a laugh is right it's just like oh my god I didn't know that's what that's what they were gonna say I didn't know that's what it was gonna be I didn't know they were gonna fall down I like I was given all of the setup for something and then I don't think we needed to nec- by that point when we got to those particular deaths I was like we don't need to subvert it anymore yeah. like we can just we can just relish in the fact that this is the premise of our show and they're they're coming to their they're coming to their conclusions and then boom getting reset. Yeah, um, it's the last stop before before it gets crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is definitely like one last bees joke. Because again, if you give one last thing, but if you give them a bees joke and you say like the universe is intelligent and it knows what's going on and it's it's actively like doing this and we're hitting this joke this hard, 
what happens. Yeah. You relax. You think you're ahead of me. Like you think you know what the show is now. And now I get to actually dig a little mm. bit deeper and start subverting those things within. Again, if you're sitting and watching the entire thing in one sitting, then I get to now go, okay, do you really want to know what this yeah. is about? Do you really want to come on this journey with us? Because if you don't, you can just stay here with the bees. Yeah. You know? <laughs> just rewatch it over and over yeah. again. So Death 18, we actually we I think it's implied that Alan kills himself again. He's cause, so last we see Alan is he's standing on the ledge. Oh yeah, which yeah. is because he's yeah. So, and the next I we won't know, confirm or deny that, but yeah, that is implied. Yeah, um, and we never learn otherwise. Yeah. So, but that's the question is not about that because then um, Nadia is with Ruth because Nadia has been triggered by seeing pictures of her mother. Ruth, the sort of. <laughs> like queen of the show comes in that has it basically says you have to forgive literally goes you have to forgive your mother <laughs> you don't have to move on you know and then Nadia goes blah 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 humanity is a bit over it. like she completely ignores her <laughs> then Ruth leaves um, and then Nadia chokes on a chicken bone wing no meat on these and then you zoom in on her feet and the bones next to her feet I mean choking by yourself is sort of like the example of human loneliness. I feel like it comes up. What was the thinking sort of there and right before episode seven, where where did you want to sort of set Nadia and the audience? Well, it is, like you said, like the the classic example of human loneliness. The thing that really hit me, though, was that this was a, an experience Polar actually had, which was that some she she was eating chicken, and there was there were either people in her house or someone had just, like, there were people yeah. close enough by that if she spoke, she would be able to get, but she couldn't speak yeah. because she was actually choking. And um, I, I wish she was here to tell the story, because I'm going to definitely butcher it, but it was some version of, like, she had seen an Oprah show, or, something, or an episode of Oprah where she knew how to yeah. make herself, basically give herself the Heimlich and was able to to dislodge it and but when she described it and I hope that we did a good job of of, of capturing it in the show what is that it was both extremely funny because it's Amy Bowler yeah. but it was also harrowing in a way that like she really put you in the personal position of it happening to you mm-hmm. and or a person you knew as opposed to sad woman dies alone with a you know what I mean? <laughs> with a with a chicken bone in her in her throat like it's like when she was telling that story, I remember thinking, like, if there's a way we can capture not just the loneliness that this type of a death signifies for the audience, but if there's some way we could I- I explain how 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 kind of like she's only one piece of knowledge away from helping herself, mm-hmm. whether it's being able to, like, make a sound or knowing how to give herself the Heimlich. It's like she is she, this this may be a very self-sufficient character. This may be a character that indeed does not need Alan's help in most areas of her life. But there is one missing piece for her. And I felt like that's what I got when I heard that story. And I wanted to save that particular death until we were getting closer to um, Nadia having, having to make um having to have her own kind of personal epiphany yeah. so that it felt like an appropriately demeaning death, I guess, in a way. I don't want to say demeaning is wrong, but like just kind of, um, what it's like futile. Like there's yeah. nothing There's nothing about it that is at all... Things are beyond your reach. Yeah. Like you, so, you realize and it, and the... And it's so yeah. small, that reach. Yeah. Like it's so dumb in a way. Like if you could just be like, help me, then it, you would be, it, would be, it would be over. Yeah. It, it, anyway, that's why we, we ended up using it later in the season as opposed to earlier, I think. So uh, episode seven... Uh, which is your horror movie? Yay! <laughs> You're back. You're back I'm in the back. director's chair. I'm back in the director's chair. You, you will 
reference different things that this show was like for you, but you'll say The Shining. Yes. And this is the horror movie episode. Uh-huh. So before we even get to the deaths, which there, there are four, but sort of three are very horror movie e. What were you hoping for? Where you're approaching? What were you thinking? Like visually, or, or just like all of it? Like visually, tonally, what were you trying? Like when you're well, like, oh, this is I'm. You you directed this episode seemingly on purpose. I imagine you had conversations of which episodes you want to direct. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, no, actually, somebody else was supposed to direct this oh, episode, cool. and they 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 had to drop out because of a scheduling thing. So I actually ended up getting to direct it, which I was really happy about. But but you once are you right. learned you were happy. Once about I it. learned that I was happy about it, I was like, yeah, we need. I'm very excited because this is literally my favorite story. My favorite story is the I, I, the Shining is my favorite movie. It's the movie that totally changed my completely changed my life. I'll never forget where I was when I watched it. I got, I have red rum tattooed on my back. It changed my life because, and the more I think about it, the more I can't exactly explain why that's the case. The The way I would explain The Shining as, as a kind of spiritual totem for me is that I cannot think of a better way and a more horrifying way to visualize the pain of insanity or alcoholism or writer's block or whatever you want to say mm. than an older self hunting down a younger self in a maze. Like, I'm just like, that is, you have described yeah. every demon I've ever had. Sure. Like, that is truly, like, when I do something I don't want to do, when I do something that's against my best interest, when I poison my body, when I hurt myself, when I date people that are not appropriate, when I do X, Y, or Z, when I stay in a job that's too long, I am hunting down my younger self and saying, like, come here, Danny, where are you? Like, and Danny is like, I want to live. I don't want to be here. I'm trying to get out. Mm. I'm trying to escape the prison that you have made for me, and I will outsmart you. I will figure out some way of outsmarting you, even if if it means I kill you, even if it means you die, um, which is why I prefer the film Shining to the book, because the book, spoilers, um, Jack gives Danny the opportunity to leave. Mm. Jack kind of overtakes, like, it's very clearly the hotel that has taken over his body, and I think a lot of it is because Stephen King wrote it. Stephen King doesn't want to implicitly, deep down, be a guy that would kill his younger self or his son. What I love about Kubrick is that Kubrick just leaned right into it and was like, inside all of us is a person that is trying to kill our younger selves and does not want them to exist any longer and wants to become basically one with whatever we consider to be our quote-unquote goal in mm. life. I am here to take care of this hotel, which is, of course, is an absurd idea. <laughs> the idea that you are taking care of the hotel. Yeah. You are not doing anything. Like, yeah. you are just sitting there. And yet, I have made it such an important goal that it is worth sacrificing everything about me that is human. Um, and so, when we started, uh, when it was originally pitched, not by me, actually, but by someone else that her younger self kind of show up in the show, eventually, to me, it felt like she needed to be that labyrinth keeper. Like, she needed to be whatever that key mm -hmm. was not like a speaking living breathing kind of thing but actually like a ghost that that she is trying to find in the midst in the center of this labyrinth that is time you yeah. know like that is the that is the time loop that we are in the the three deaths that before we get to sort of the realization death so right so the first happens four minutes in she explains this whole linear time thing and then she sees the little kid across the street she has a heart attack and alan's Ears just start bleeding. What? What is it? Do you see that? See what? Uh, I think I'm having a heart attack. Okay. If we're dying right now, I'll meet you back at the deli, right? Just go straight to the... Yeah. So at this point, you're just like, 
this rule, this world exists. It has agency and it is menacing. Yeah. And now your deaths will become internal. They will not be things that you can stop from yes. happening. They aren't things that are happening to you. You know, like meaning like uh, there are exter- external circumstances that are threatening. Now the threat is inside you. Which I, now that I'm saying it out loud, I can't think of a better example of what therapy really is, right? Which is like, you go in, you say, there are these, all these external factors, here are all the problems with my life, and then somebody says to you, it's all on the inside. It's all happening on the inside. Uh, So the next death, she brings her friends with her. Um, At this point, Greta Lee's (laughs) character says two very funny things, which I don't want to blow past, (laughs) because she's just sort of there, and I guess she has to say something, so she says... So too many colonics is is definitely a thing. And does this feel weird to either of you you know like you haven't been outside so then she complains about a jacket and she just goes damn it never know what jacket to bring it's a real problem in my life (laughs) i mean i truthfully wish i could take credit for these lines these are both complete complete improvs from the great Greta Lee, who's just a genius who's just a a total like it's just my favorite kind of actor where i'm like just say something else and then she just says that (laughs) so you're just like like, when she said can i get bangs that was also me just saying like just say something and she was like can i should i get bangs and i was like what is happening so you're like we need this we need something you need a beat just by your ear so say something so just not even just by your ear just talk the way you would talk to your friend i'm like just find something to talk about start talking about it go action you know and she's like yeah Clonics are definitely, you know, I think what would happen is she and Lizzie's, uh, Rebecca Henderson, I think Greta and Rebecca would kind of, if I'm remembering correctly, would start improving while we were kind of counting down. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and then we're like, set, okay, and action. And then they would just launch into whatever they were in mid-conversation about. I think that was their kind of like improvisation idea. But the point was, is that I would really wanted the tenor to be different. Like, yeah. I really wanted them to feel very like either, if not straight comedic, like we're just mid-conversation as friends. For us, none of this is, it was very important that they not acknowledge that anything is different or Mm -hmm. going on for them. Uh, So then that next death is, uh, they're in the bodega. She walks away from them. She walks up to the girl. I'm seeing things. Should we go to a hospital? Nadia, we're dying again. Whoa! 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 Why is that? She, well, when I've heard her tell this story a couple times, but she says this is her favorite death because on the day when we shot it, um, when she fell into Charlie, she just really felt herself. She was just like, something happened to me, you know? Like, she just felt herself give up. You know, in a way. And she felt herself kind of go into this place of like just this other plane, like this other feeling of like, and I'm dead now, (laughs) you know, like and then, you know, and then, of course, you know, we're like, are you okay?" And she's like, yeah, you know, and then we do it again or we move on to the next shot or whatever it is. But I think there was something special about her. I think she also really felt like confronting Brooke, who was playing her younger self, having her friends around her, the 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 feeling of falling into her friends like there was something about that whole way it was set up that felt like, yeah, this is it, you know. Um, I did realize I skipped one where she gets asthma when she sees the kid again. But oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Same, same. It's basically like the other one, but the stakes are increasing. So we're now building to what is ultimately the final death of the sh- of the first season, uh, or yes, whatever. Yes, we yes, don't yes. know. They might they will die at some point, but ultimately of the season. So he goes. She goes to Alan's. Alan goes, You are the most selfish person I have ever met. Thank you for changing my life. Lives are hard to change. 
what so i guess as we building up to what is she learning so what's she learning there and then also she meets ruth and ruth is like you were this tiny seed buried in darkness fighting your way to the light you wanted to live it's the most beautiful thing in the world do you still have that in you she starts crying i'm gonna make you some tea then she tries to um light the tea and it doesn't explode Mm, yeah what is this period before the last death I don't know if I could ever bring you back to like the timeline of us writing it but when you just said that what I thought is like it's to me it's so obvious now that it's like hope yeah it's just that tiny little bit of like you know the the audience and the character needs a little bit of like things could change you can change people can change you know both um Alan saying like you changed my life lives are hard to change the fact that like the gas leak doesn't go and that's a change that's a different thing that's happened like the universe or the intelligence or god or whatever it is is signaling to her that things can change if you're willing to go there Mm -hmm. you know whatever that might mean um and i found that in my own life that's usually how you know the scariest parts you know of my life there usually is this like just this kind of like almost childlike thought of like i could do this you know like and then you go on the journey and it's yeah. really dark and hard and difficult. In Alan's timeline or Alan's he 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 apologizes, Mike shows up, he's okay with it, his nose starts bleeding. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, this guy's gonna die again. <laughs> yeah. So uh which brings me to Nadia uh brings Emily's is here to John's daughter. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. She says thank you. Thank you. Uh she starts coughing up blood. <laughs> She coughs blood onto this creepy girl. <laughs> the girl changes. She's still inside you. Uh, she pulls a shard of mirror out. Now this little girl is Nadia's little girl, and then you cut to uh, Nadia's mom smashing the mirrors. And then Nadia's down on the floor, and it looks really gross. We'll stop right there, and then we'll <laughs> talk about what she says there. Talk about all of those that moment. Well, this is, death was really inspired by possession, but there's this great like kind of meltdown that she has. She's been like taken over by this alien or this demon and she has this insane meltdown in the in the subway and we kind of thought you know, it'd be cool to have a death that was just, uh, a, yeah, a little bit more like there's, you know, literally something growing inside mm-hmm. you. But uh, honestly, like for me, while we were making that episode, I just really my big goal was like to make death scary again for the viewer that it felt like oh my god right death right like that thing that we can't control that thing that's always coming after us like that that very intense feeling of power powerlessness when we stare it right straight in the face you know like so the quickest kind of like way through navigating like why it happens and why it goes down and why the spell is broken in the way that it is is that if you really think about the setup of the show, the idea is that this is the child of a very sick person who inherited a lot of that person's trauma mm-hmm. and that person's problems. They have their own problems as well and their own, you know, we're not blaming her mom for everything that's ever happened yeah. to her. But the point being that she doesn't have a template for past when her mom was alive, or past her mom's death, rather. So past 36, she has no template for living. So the second she turns 36, she starts reliving that moment over and over again because she just doesn't know what her life is like 
when it surpasses her mom's, mm-hmm. you know, like, and so in order to have the courage to move past that moment, she has to go back to who she was when her mom was going through that same thing and say, that is not your problem and that's not your story. And we're going to move forward from here, you and I. Um, and I will, you know, maybe not as like hugs and kisses as like, I will now parent you, my inner child, but like, <laughs> I am now in charge of you in a way that, um, I probably should have been a long time ago, um, but in a way that I I shouldn't have needed to when I was younger. I'm a lot of children that have to parent themselves. Like that's something that um, once they get into adulthood, they kind of give up yeah. on on that because they're like, I shouldn't have had to do that. Um, and you can tell by the way little Nadia interacts with the great Chloe, uh, Chloe Sevigny um, that you can tell that she doesn't want to be the parent and yet knows that she will have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tell from that beautiful monologue that Natasha has that that's the same this the feeling of having like rejected her mom of having made the adult choice as a child you know like uh, was the thing that really made her feel like she had betrayed her um, for her to move past all of that kind of stuff is is to move toward healing um, one thing that I said a lot when we were working on the show and I don't know if I said it very well I've been able to say it better in press than yeah. I think I did when we were presently working on it but one thing that I always felt was so important for the show once we when we had the premise that of what it was of this you know kind of Groundhog Day like premise was that we needed to we needed to solve the problem emotionally and then we had to solve the problem physically mm-hmm. so she had to go deep down inside herself to solve the problem emotionally and then we could have episode eight which is like the save the clock tower episode where yeah. you get to like externally solve this problem you know of repeating the same behavior and expecting different results but first she was going to have to go inside herself to do that. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if ultimately the thing that saves is connecting to another person, she has to sort of solve why she was, why was at the core of what she was having a hard time yeah. connecting to another person, is, you know, the, the thing that she says, Are you ready to let her die? And she says, yes. And then there's a whisper of like, This is the day we get free. So for you, is it when you say, let her die, are you saying that it was implying that this is her story? and not necessarily your story. You don't have to be burdened by her. What does it mean that mm. that exchange for you? Uh, I guess my instinct is to say that like, are you ready to have her die means like to accept reality. Yeah. To accept that she is dead. To, to accept death in that way, in the finality of it. That really she is no longer here. Um, I always like joked, even when we were in the right way back in the writers' room, that it was a ghost. That this was a ghost story. That this was a this was some sort of a haunting. Yeah. And I didn't know exactly what that meant. <laughs> I still don't really know what that meant. But I think that's a little bit of what she means. Like, are you ready to not have this particular yeah. spectral um, ghost living in your? you know, psychological attic. You know, I watched it one time and then I was rewatching this and it, this scene I was crying. And Aww. what is crazy that I did not notice this connection is um, the specific part about is a show about a person turning 36 whose parent did not turn 36 is I had a parent pass away when they were in their 30s. And it is an incredibly specific observation to make that I imagine wasn't in the initial pitch. And it's not an experience that... You know, Natasha says this is about personal experience in some ways, but like seemingly this is not exactly her experience Mm -hmm. or or Amy's or yours. How did you find that? I mean, like in terms of like, I think that is correct. I think you tap into something. How do you land on 
that specific part of it where you knew you were going to have this character and she's going to go through these things but to land on like oh and the crux will be ultimately she's starting 36 and she won't have a template of what that looks like mm. I don't know. I mean, they, like, I mean, sorry, I don't have a. It's okay. I don't have a great. But, but you're right. It's like it is weird to have written a story like that that doesn't have a one to one autobiographically because people have had such so many people mm. as evidenced by the response to the show and like the tweets that I've gotten and the the threads that I've read on on Reddit and like that that people so deeply uh, personally respond to what the show is talking about in in its minutia, not just like universally. Like it's like my mom mom xyz my I, when i turned blah, blah blah you know like it's like there's this and i i don't know what else to say about it except to say that it's kind of i that it is a little bit of magic in my opinion i really do i just think it's kind of magic like i think it's just that kind of like when you're writing any script um or making any sort of piece of art, I think you are in a really dark room looking, looking for mm. and trying to describe the room to everyone else. Right. Like, so you're walking through the room, you don't know what it looks like, but you're grabbing onto things. You're touching them real fast and you're going, okay, I think I got a lamp over at the Southwest end of the room. So there's a lamp there. Then I felt a bed next to it, but you don't really know for sure. Like, and, and so when the light, in a way, when you send it out into the universe, the lights get turned on yeah. and you're kind of like, oh yeah, I guess that we got most of that right but there's a couple of things that we kind of just had to feel our way through and kind of do our best you know emotionally intelligent guest at what would be the most cathartic way to end this story yeah. emotionally like physically I think once we clicked on the for for episode eight when we clicked on the multiverse and with the kind of like multi, multiple dimensions and like so on and so forth like that was really fun and it felt like nice and flashy yeah. you know like it felt like you know and we actually broke that before we broke this oh, episode well we knew we didn't I think we wrote them concurrently but we knew that that was going to happen but we weren't sure what was the what was the emotional kind of like depth that she was going to have to go to to get to that part um um, cause like I said, like the save the clock tower part is like, it's hard to figure out, but once you figure it out, you're like, great. But it, it is just a bunch of moves yeah. until you know how it's affecting the character personally. And what is it that, what is it, what is the thing that they need to go through to get there? Clearly there's so many different things going on with like, oh, it's going to be about this. It's about this. It's about, yeah. the, but to, and ultimately it's a small part of the show that is at the core of a lot of the sort of things she's dealing with. But do you remember what led you to that thing? It's ultimately like, oh, she's, this, is going to a, this is going to be a character that is dying and dying is going to have some sort of relationship to her mental state. What is it? Sort of, did you reverse engineer? How did you sort of land on like, oh, this is correct. It feels correct. It, I don't, uh, I mean, the the sad answer is like a lot of work. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I wish it was like, and then we were sitting under a tree yeah. and, a, and an apple fell and it hit us on the head and we were like, this is it. It was like an immense amount of hours in that, uh, in that, in that writer's room, in the edit room, on set, like talking to a bunch of people that we really trusted and, and who believed in us and who we believed in and whom we thought were the most talented people that, that we could get in those rooms and said like what do you guys think about this like mm -hmm. is it is this it yeah is it this thing is it that thing and so 
like at the end of the day, I'm not a solo person lying around in, you know, a soundproof room, like coming up with ideas. You know, it's like it's hundreds of people that all gave their feedback and all weighed in and all kind of fought for what they believed in in this story. And then, yeah, there are there are a chosen few that make that final decision. But um, it's influenced by all this work by everybody else. Uh, you mentioned collaboration and, you know, a lot of the message of th- I was thinking about this after watching Sleeping with Other People and um, and a lot of ultimately what the especially last episode was about is you need other people. Yeah. Um, and you wrote that thing about how there's the myth of the auteur. And <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So it seems like the idea that you need other people is very big. It was in every interview Natasha talks about that is like th- what the show's about. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. Is that a thing you believe that to self-improve you need? A person? I do think you do. I think that, like, you know, especially, you know, my friend Michael Esper, who I, I is an actor that I worked with a bunch um, in theater and has become, like, one of my dearest friends. And, you know, he gave me what I would consider to be the high, highest compliment I've ever gotten as a writer and director, which is that he said, you're an auteur who collaborates. And I was like, that's truly what I've always wanted mm-hmm. is I, I just don't think that it's enough to be really good at writing and directing and producing. Like, I think you have to also be able to work with people. And I think there are people that, you know, um, you know, you find your people. There are some people that I don't collaborate well with. I think there are some people that I collaborate especially well with and that I work with over and over again. You know, I think there are people that I've worked with for a period of time that were excellent collaborators and now we've moved on to work on other projects. Like, I don't think you necessarily in in needing other people means you have to be tied down in any way yeah. to one particular genre or field or um uh, or medium, you know, like, I think it just means like, are you showing up ready to be adaptable, you know? Um, and, uh, and are you ready to help? Uh, are you ready to be, to be heard and also to be criticized by the people that you're working with? You know, I, I would say that, that one of the things that is so sad about the auteur myth is the idea that like, that one person is in charge of a particular story. I mean, the the whole idea of a story is that once you set it out into the world, it becomes many people's story. You know, like if, you know, hopefully mm-hmm. hundreds of people can watch Russian Doll and feel like it's their story. The idea that I would have own any kind of ownership over anything that I participated in seems counterintuitive to what it's supposed to be um, and how it's supposed to be consumed. When, when you're... Going through a show, and especially thinking when I, I think about the ending is sort of has ambiguous, it doesn't answer necessarily, this is the answer to the entire show. Right. And and the show in general, right? It's like, it's for some people, it is about addiction. For some people, it's about therapy or whatever. Do you, when you edit a show, do you make sure you're like, oh, this is leaning too much to be a show about one thing or not? Is that uh, a thing no. you have to think about when you... No, it's a good question, but no, that didn't happen a lot on this show. It's like, there, but I know what you mean, which is like, what's the North Star of the show? Yeah. And I think what that's what's, again, great about collaboration and what's great about working with someone like, you know, like Natasha, where, you know, you can kind of, and I, I felt this with my friend Jason McAuliffe, who created Heathers as well, like, you know, you kind of turn to them and you go, what do you think? Like, is this right? 
Like yeah. what, what is not right about it? You know, like, and it's like, well, it just, I guess it just doesn't seem right. Cause we don't seem like that kind of show, you know, or she doesn't seem like that kind of character. It just, I mean, Jason would say all the time is he's like, it just isn't Heather's like, yeah. it just isn't. And that's just, that just, we knew what that meant. We were yeah. like, right. It's just not Heather's. And so your instinct is right that there is that, but, but it isn't, there isn't like a checklist. Yeah. It is more of a gut feeling. And I think that that gut has to be checked by others. So you've pitched the show as multiple seasons and, um, last I heard you had not started like really in earnest planning for the second season, which I believe you've been, have you started planning for the second season? No, I don't think so. So yes, you have yeah. not started planning. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know you've if you talked. mean, if you mean planning is like, well, you, you know, like sat down, had a meeting, you no, brought a bunch no, no, of people no, together. No, 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 no. Like earnest, we're now we're working on a show yeah, active. Yeah, not yet. Um, so that means that there's both there's one reason questions you won't answer for spoiler reasons, but questions you also won't answer because you don't know the answers. Yeah, so. I just don't. Yeah. <laughs> but um, with a show like this, traditionally, I think um, I think you're able to avoid a little bit by it being bingeable. But people, there's the people who want answers. Oh yes, yeah. There's yeah, yeah. the people who want to. It's the Damon Lindelof's the curse of his life. Is it sort of like yes, that's people true. Are like, yeah. We the answers to lost hypothetically or not as satisfying to whatever it was. And then he right. created leftovers and be like, I'm not answering the th- anything. Yeah. Where are you about answers? Are there answers? Do you care about answers? Well, like I said, I think that like you have to answer some things. Like I think you have to, you know, I don't think you can totally start some threads and then never answer them. You know, like um, it's funny. I was just reading Disney war, the book about like, uh, Eisner's tenure mm-hmm. at Disney and and you know he didn't want to buy Lost because he was like I remember Twin Peaks he was like everybody gets pissed off, you know and I was like in a way he was right you know like even yeah. though it was a huge hit for ABC and like it ran for all those seasons in in a way he wasn't wrong like we just didn't he just didn't I think counter in the interactive aspect yeah. of that show the fact that you know if Twin Peaks had happened during the internet perhaps we could have like made keep kept that going for a little bit longer um or if David Lynch had been not David Lynch, sure. <laughs> possibly. But um, but I think with a show like this one, and especially when it, that's so openly existential and so openly symbolic, meaning like even the title Russian Doll is so clearly like like Black Mirror is, uh, you know, we really fought for that title because yeah. I was like, it just shouldn't be a thing. Like it ha- it should just be an idea, like a state of mind. Um, people should describe situations as a Russian doll. This is like a Russian doll situation, like a Black Mirror situation. You know, I feel like this is a Brazil situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> that was really what we were kind of going for so much more so than, um, you know, a narrative question mark yeah. or a mystery box. It's like all the mystery box aspects of the show should be emotional. And those should be answered. Whether or not, you know, you buy our our description of what the fourth dimension looks like or whether or not you feel like the ending of the show means one thing or the other or whether they're dead or whether it's purgatory, like, mm-hmm. you know, all of those kinds of things. I do think it's those are more fun to leave up to interpretation and to let people kind of wonder a little bit and dream a little bit. In interviews and in things you've mentioned that it's possible that the a second season wouldn't be about the same characters or existentialism can take many forms. It doesn't have to oh, be. Oh, 100%. I think the problem now is is that it's such a huge success. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's like, be that becomes a, <laughs> well, I just mean like, it, it's 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 much more of a cultural touchstone now in a way that it was not, you know, obviously when we pitched it, we yeah. thought they're never going to pick this up. You know, like, <laughs> we kind of were, we were pitching it on such a, like, you know, such a, it could be anything yeah. kind of kind of place. And it's hard because TV, this is when TV becomes TV, which is like right. ultimately people like 
characters. They the like characters. They like they, they like the, the East Village. They like, like there are going to be certain things I think that do go on that checklist now, like yeah. in a way that they didn't for the first season. Like I now I think the show will take on um, a, a particular personality. Like the show will be another person in that room that yeah. you're talking about. Like you know, in a way, it was just the three of us at the beginning, and now it'll be the three of us and the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is uh, is dying on the checklist? I can't say. Is oh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of another way to get in. Um, regardless of dying as a narrative device, the di- not the dying of the characters if they do or do not die. Right, is death on the checklist? What I will say is that there are a lot of things in life, not just death. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I think there that while death is the biggest one, um, there are a lot of things uh, that are death adjacent mm-hmm. and or um, uh, not not even necessarily you know related to death specifically that the, that an existential adventure show would be able to you know partake or discuss in. But one thing that I can say is that I think while I there was definitely a time in my life where death was hanging over me I don't live my life that way anymore and so it would be interesting to explore existential issues where that isn't hanging over your head all the time when you hear y'all describe the show you will specifically say it's a female existentialist show and not like an existentialist show that features a woman oh yeah 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 which is different yeah. right oh, and yeah. also I think speaks to the existence of existentialist art pre this show, which oh yeah yeah yeah, which That's is true. less a female existentialist world and more like here are two male characters that are in a wasteland and then yeah. two more characters. Or it's like Antonioni just like staring at Monica Vitti for a long time, yeah. you know, <laughs> and you're kind of like, I guess this is yeah. And I was also thinking about. Natasha had an answer about why the character was 36. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and how it relates to, like, it's before kids would be part of the factor. But the ultimate question is, what does it mean for it to be a female, capital F, female existentialist show? I think there are some artists that don't want their work wrapped up in what their particular identity uh, identity or what they identify as. But I do feel like, as a female artist, that that I would like to create capital F female content. Yeah. Um, not to exclude anyone, but just because I don't know if I see enough female protagonists taking on the types of stories that I'm interested in. Um, I don't I don't think that that means that men wouldn't enjoy the show or that um, people that don't identify or, you know, are non-binary yeah. would not enjoy the show. I just think that I would love I, it's an experience I have and I would love to really speak from that experience. Is there something, I guess, feminine or female about how this story is told or about how the existential exists itself that might be different? I mean, like. You have Alan, but ultimately Alan is a smaller character. So I think it's more that we didn't. Uh, if there's anything like overtly female about the show, it's that it's not ad, uh, adhering to any female tropes that we felt like we needed to Got hit it. on. Do you know what I mean? If anything, we actively ran in the other direction. Meaning, if there were certain things about female characters, specifically female characters in existential crises, that we thought were ne- were usually hit, like men, children. Mm. Um, you know, again, none of these. Th- these are all problems. I have sure. <laughs> even as a gay woman I'm like men <laughs> money issues like you know it's just that we've seen them already yeah. so if we run screaming in the opposite direction what does it look like you know and I think that um again the 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 embracing of this particular character in this particular storyline is kind of surprising to me to be honest because it is so uh left of center yeah. in terms of like what you see normally um with uh 
you know, a character's drive being, you know, like it's interesting to see a character whose drive is like quite literally just to survive herself. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like to survive her own brain um, or an un, or an unstable or unfriendly universe, you know, like the idea that usually they're striving in a career that's male dominated, like Veep or Maisel. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, which is extremely compelling. Those are two of my favorite shows, you know, like, but it's also something I've seen done many, many times. And so when you have an opportunity like Russian Tall, when you get to go in and pitch that, you do go like, well, what's the opposite? Like, what, what if it's not that? What if it's not those things? Even though we nod to that with like yeah. the three guys and the bug report and like, we, you know, there's still like a little bit of it there. We don't want her to be living in a vacuum necessarily, but it's not what the show's about. Yeah. You've talked about in the past how personal some of your work is is, you know, you'll say like sleeping with other people's ve- about very specific relationships in your life. Oh, early. yes. Yeah. So this was more collaborative, but also you worked on it. This was your life. Oh, it- yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we started, I asked you, what was your re- relationship to death before they came to you? Did working on this change it? Did oh. it? Did it make you feel better? It did, actually. It made me feel less alone, to be quite honest. Like, I I felt like in working with Natasha, specifically as an actor, I felt less... um, I felt less alone in terms of my, you know, my fears. Like I felt like she and I shared a lot of the same fears, both existentially and professionally, you know, like, I mean, I remember sitting with her when, you know, sleeping with other people came out and it was a very, you know, it was successful in its own right. But, you know, she kind of said to me, uh, some version of this, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but some version of like, you know, this is, it's great. It's a wonderful, you know, it's a great movie. This is great. But you know, you, you I know what you're looking for. You're looking for that acknowledgement from, uh, from your community in a way that, that if you don't get that, you're going to feel, um, you're going to lose your mind. You're going to mm. go crazy, you know? And it's like, and that's true. It's like as, as fulfilling as each of my films were, as each of my projects are, wh- whether they go on, you know, they move on and become Russian doll or they, they're pilots that are canceled or whatever. I, tr- like to think that I put just as much of myself in each and every single one of them. But, um, but she, she and I have that same kind of fear of not being seen by our community Mm -hmm. and feeling like, or at the time. And I think what's changed since the show coming out is that everyone's like, Oh no, I see you. Like I totally get it. And actually I feel the same way. Or, um, or I admire that or I appreciate that. And I think that's funny. Or I think that's, um, I think it's so cool that I got to see a show about a woman who is like me or a woman that I don't know necessarily relate with but like I got to like even though I don't usually like women like that you know what I, sure. whatever it might be you know like I think that that was one of the things that made me that did make me feel so much better because it did feel like if I didn't it did make me feel seen and I think by being I think by being seen by her I now have felt seen by everybody else like um collaborating with someone who was so kind of like I'm going to show you everything of yeah. mine and I was like I'm going to show you everything of mine um we were able to create something where you you guys all get to see like a more vulnerable more real part of ourselves that possibly hadn't been in our work uh, up until then um because you know even though I want people to see me what am I doing like constantly self-protecting constantly trying to like fit my narrative into a rom-com case and yeah. you know is that going to be enough is that going to make you like me is that going to make you um realize like how much work I put into this are you going to be able to feel that pain as succinctly as I felt it if I put it in this particular you know 
play shaped, you know, creation or um, or is it this weirdo show about a chick that keeps dying? Like, you know, like it's like a lot of it is chance, but I don't think it was an accident that um, we both were at kind of a similar place in our lives Mm -hmm. and kind of went like, let's just do it all. Like, let's just leave it all on the table and see what happens. And the fact that this has been the response is kind of the best thing that ever could have possibly happened to me. So, yeah, I feel so much better. Uh, so that sound means it's time for a final segment, which is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. Got it. Great. Um, <laughs> do you have a favorite joke joke, like a street joke? Oh, you know, I love uh, the Dorothy Barker joke. You can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think. That's it. Sorry. <laughs> um, That's the only one I can think of. Do you have a favorite joke from a movie? Well, when you asked the question, the first thing that came to mind was my my parents, my brother, and my sister and I all have a, a a thread going on of just who can think of the most random joke from the Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. So it's just us trying to like make each other laugh with like. So my mom won recently with who the fuck are the Knutsons? <laughs> so that was the first thing that came to mind, but it's very outside. Sure. Yeah. Uh, what is the funniest scene for a movie that you can think of that has no jokes? There's no jokes, but is funny too. Well, I think because it's just on my mind. What's up, Doc? Like the whole the whole segment in where they're invading that party, like Mm -hmm. the the black and white party room um, where they're all looking at the, like that I don't think has any, I mean, they have jokes in that scene, but that's the, my favorite physical comedy scene of just like mayhem um, taking, uh, taking place. So sometimes we'll ask comedians about jokes from earlier in the career that uh, they regret. Do you have a scene you regret in any way and for any capacity of it? Oh, interesting. Or which you can do differently. I would probably, you know what a scene I would do differently? I wouldn't omit it, but I would do the scene, I would make it more explicit in the scene uh, between, uh, in Sleeping With Other People, when Jason is demonstrating um, pleasuring a woman on the mason jar. I think in that scene, some people think that, like, Allie's character is, like, completely unaware of Mm -hmm. what her vagina is like and that he's like explaining it to her her in some way and to me I always read the scene as like she knows she's just letting him talk because he's obviously very like into the fact that he can do this and she kind of finds it to be funny and for me metatextually it's more interesting to have the male character saying this than the female character saying it but I have gotten some flack recently like on Twitter and stuff from people that are kind of like why is he mansplaining to her and I'm like I don't think he is but I guess I if I could do it again I would just make it clearer that like she's not she's not completely unaware yeah. of the anatomy of her vagina it's just that like you know she can tell that he wants to talk to her about it and she's like okay fine yeah. you know a, a face of just like nodding yeah like, yeah, like yeah. I would put in like an ADR joke or like a quick little like cutaway or something like that that made it maybe a little more explicit have you been to a party that after 11 o'clock they make a roast chicken this is a think about the show oh, that yeah. has fascinated me forever yeah and then they make it and then they eat this chicken <laughs> i'm not even saying it's bad i was more like i mean i guess it's cold outside so it's like it wouldn't be too hot and it's a big but like is where does that the way is that the, the natasha leone's life that's natasha leone's life that that was a pitch from natasha about her making a chicken i do have to say i've been to many new york parties where people are cooking during them and i found it to be very suspect like, I'm always like, who are you people? Yeah. Like, and I don't mean like I worked ahead of time and cooked stuff for the party. I mean, we are mid party and it's not necessarily a food related party, but they're like, I'm making this. Do you guys want some? And you're like, I guess so. Like, but, and it's usually people that are on drugs. I'm just going to say. Sure. 
Uh, Which I guess Maxine is at that point. Do you remember the first time you heard how Natasha said the word cockroach? (laughs) That day. It's the cockroach. (laughs) Wait, it might have been the, it might have been the table read. It might have been the table read and I thought, oh, that's really dumb. I hope she doesn't do that when we're shooting. And then (laughs) then she did it and I just thought, I I have no notes. I I was like, I'm just going to let, I'm not going to say anything. Everyone kept laughing. I didn't think it was funny. That's what's so crazy about that joke is that like nobody thought it was funny. But I think I was smart enough to not get in the way of that joke, even though it didn't particularly tickle my fancy. But I was like, oh, okay. Everybody loves it. Uh, So... You've written plays. You've written movies. This is a TV show. You've described it as like an album. Would you rather win an, an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, or Tony? Oh, a Tony. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a theater nerd through and through. I mean, all of them are amazing, but like, you know, a Tony, though, to be a, to be a playwright, to be a Tony winning playwright, I think would be... There's something just so romantic about it. <laughs> there are a lot of weird Oscar winners. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, try to think of a Tony winner you don't like. You know, I'm trying to think of one. So I'm sure there's somebody yeah. really problematic we're not sure. thinking of. <laughs> um, which of your Emmy competitors for best comedy uh-huh what do you, which show do you wish you created and feel like if you did like wish feel like you wish you created feel like in a world you could have created it and how would it be different oh that's a really good like question you like a lot of this show. oh i love all of them that's the thing what are they again it's veep Maisel, Fleabag, Barry, Barry, Barry. Oh my God. I feel like I pitched Barry. Like no offense, (laughs) Alec Berg, but I feel like I pitched Barry like 10 years ago. And I was like, gross point blank, the show. (laughs) You know, and everyone's like, no, nobody cares. Um, And a fifth one, I don't know. What was the fifth one? You must know. Oh no, it's Shit's it's Shit's Creek. Creek. It's Shit's Creek. It's Shit's Creek. Oh my God, they're all amazing. It's very good. They're all amazing. I don't, that's a really hard question. And I'm not even being political. I actually, I would say, like, I'd be like, not that one, not that one. They're all good. Fuck. I think the show I wish I could have been a part, like, creative been a part of is Veep. Yeah. Because I just admire what they did with her character so much. And I feel like I could have brought a lot (laughs) in terms of, just hatefulness <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that I think would have been Veep is also a show that is I've I've gasped at jokes on and I just think that that is something that uh, you know but again like placing myself in the position of that I'm kind of glad I'm not in charge of that show because it's so good that I'm like I don't know you can be like a staff writer on the show yeah exactly like I rebooted loved, but everyone's like, the same but you're a staff yeah, writer yeah but everything's the same but I'm a staff writer and I get to watch it from the beginning to the end like that would be amazing I've actually I've re-watched that show like more than once like it's so so good but I guess if I really were being brutal I'd say probably Fleabag because I feel like Fleabag um, touches on a lot of things that I have experience with and doesn't touch on it in a way that I have experience with if that makes sense like um um, it not touches. British. I'm not British. <laughs> I'm not straight. <laughs> and so I feel like I could bring like an American lesbian like <laughs> twist on that. Sure, that yeah. would be super fun. Um, uh, but I would get whoever's directing it to direct it, though, because that person's amazing. The 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 the, pi- the pilot for the si- or the first episode of the second season is one of the best edited, best like covered 
dinner scenes I have ever seen. I was screaming. Like, it ended, and I watched it again. I was like, I cannot believe, I was like, how did he do this? I mean, when you get me to go, like, how'd you do this? Like, that, that's, I, I was blown away by it. So, I would not touch Killing Eve, though. That I don't want to go anywhere near. That's uh, that's a that's perfection. I'll sometimes usually end up. Uh, I'll ask a comedian about jokes they've tried and they kept on uh, not working, even though the oh. uh, even though they believe in it. Do you have similar jokes or scenes, especially in your days of putting up theater when it maybe not was not ready yet? Yeah, were you like, "What? This is what they didn't oh, like?" Oh my god! Yeah. Well, I remember a joke that I wrote. It's still in the play and in the movie, but it is. It really is a uh, for you. It's for me. It's for me. And it's and it's because when I wrote it, my immediate thought was you can't say that. And so I kept it in. And you can just tell the tenor of anyone with their reaction to this joke, which is you guys had an abortion without me, <laughs> which is which is just the most selfish thing a human being could say. I just I just thought I can't think of anything more selfish. And I thought I can't have a person say that like it's just not a thing you can say and 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 I remember sitting in my roommate's kitchen you know the woman that I live with her kitchen writing that play and thinking like I cannot I starting to erase it and then having a voice that said no that's exactly why you should keep it and I think as problematic as it is I will never it, it's it will always be there because I mean who says that <laughs> The fact, I mean, I just was like, it just told me everything about that character, that they could not even for one second entertain somebody else's feelings <laughs> because they were so upset about being left out. <laughs> what a dick. What a dick. The end. We That's did it. it. We, we did, did it. it. Oh, my God. That was so much fun. That's it for another episode of Good One. Russian Doll is available to stream on Netflix. Follow Leslie on social media at Leslie Headland. Good One is produced by Mike Comte with production assistance from Jessamine Molly. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them what the heck. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.